Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. This is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, what do you know about separatism? <laughs> well, sorry, sorry, let me... Is it separatism me, from the new conglomerate that is no, let North me, America? Or let, is me, it? let me uh, uh, rephrase. What do you know about separatism in Canada? As if there was any other kind. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of... Well, I mean... A good story I like to tell is that the Catalonians in Spain mm. actually voted to separate. They, they're pro- like their provincial equivalent legislature voted to separate from Spain. Okay, and Spain was just like no. Wow. <laughs> and they, they when, just, when did that they happen? Just sent in the troops. Oh, it's like was it? three or four years ago, maybe. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Ah, so that would be like the equivalent to of if Alberta was to like vote to separate and then. Right, but actually, there were these, and there were there were referendums in Quebec. Yeah, I think it was ninety five, ninety three, ninety three. Are you sure? No, I feel like it was ninety five because I feel like right because Gretchen was elected in ninety three and then ninety five. Yes, so ninety five. There were two referendums actually. There was one in the seventies as well. Ah, yeah. But the no referendum won by like fifty point four percent or yeah, something like, like that. And then there was like the sponsorship scandal, which was essentially about that. Uh, okay, so in the Spanish model, if Quebec had voted to separate, and Canada, Canada was like, the sorry, <laughs> fuck, you guys can't fucking go. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's too bad. We're not letting you leave. <laughs> exactly. Wow, that's like uh, an abusive relationship. Which eh? I mean, theoretically, is what's happening in this book. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, there we go. That's why I like these intros, because I didn't expect Catalonia. <laughs> but, you know, um, you got to leave the cat alone. <laughs> well, you just got to look for examples when you're trying to do something around the world to see if it could work, right? Uh, this, okay. Well, <laughs> David swooping in with a real answer <laughs> to a dumbass question. <laughs> you're welcome, everybody. <laughs> there we go. There we go. So today, we are tackling the behemoth. Oof, maybe the hardest book we'll ever do on this podcast, unless we go for Ulysses, and then that, that could be equally different. True, true. So yes, we're doing the 1996 David Foster Wallace uh, gem, Infinite Jest. And the joke which, that you told me about this is that apparently on some forums, mm. uh, women are warned that you should never date a man who has Infinite Jest on his shelf but has not read it. Oh, okay, yeah, I actually, I remember where I heard that. Okay, yeah. It was an interview with Jason Segal or right, so, right. who plays David Foster Wallace in the 2015 film End of the Tour, which we'll probably reference a few more times in this episode. And apparently when he went to buy Infinite Jest or something like this, there was like, he was, or he was talking to a girl about it, and she's like, ugh, I've dated so many guys who have that book and never I, read I it. I never read it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. like, ugh. Like how, yeah, it's like the one staple book on everyone's bookshelf that no one can just quite finish, hey? And there's a reason for that. This yeah. is maybe the hardest, well, this is the hardest book that I've ever read the whole thing. Yeah, I think 
I have. I've, well, have you read Ulysses? <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. So. I, I have read Ulysses, and it's slightly less comprehensible than this book. Okay, so there you <laughs> so, go. So maybe I have one more step up from this. Yeah. But, uh... So Infinite Jest, which in the book, the title Infinite Jest is the title of a videotape that we will talk which more about. Which some people say is a MacGuffin, but I don't know. What yeah, okay. Think. Yeah. Uh, but apparently... It originally, or at least culturally, originally comes from um, a line in Hamlet. Yes. So there's a line in Hamlet. About well, this as with everything jest. that David Foster Wallace does, there are layers, mm-hmm. right? So the yeah. title it wasn't just about something in the book. It was also a literary reference, also a philosophic idea. Like you're well, dealing with I mean, a lot in just a title. There's something weirdly almost like pre-autobiographical about this book. No. <laughs> which yeah. is uh, which something is like, else. Which makes it feel like it's time travel. The whole thing is... Yeah. And so the character in Infinite Jest who makes Infinite Jest is a character very similar to David Foster Wallace, it feels like, in some ways. Who, I guess we should just get to a commit suicide, right, in the book, Mm -hmm. which later David Foster Wallace does later in life. Yeah, unfortunately, David Foster Wallace took his own life in... 2010, I believe. I think it's 2008. Okay. 2008, so... Luke is usually better at these things, so I'm (laughs) going to acquiesce to him on that. And I have to say, though, that this book is a breathtaking achievement, well, I think it's, I've said to a lot of people that I think it's the only thing that was written in our lifetime that will stand the test of time. Oh, you don't think there's been any? Nothing else comparable. Well, okay, not in the same vein, but I, I'm pretty sure 100 years from now, people will still be reading Harry Potter. Yeah, okay, I could give them that. Yeah. Right, it's different reason. Different reason, Like, yeah. I, well, okay. It's not even 100 years since Narnia, and like, how many 21-year-olds do you know who read Narnia? Depends on their parents. I guess that, yeah, I would. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Hopefully some literary genius comes along, and, and it won't be the only thing worth reading. That's, I don't think that's what I'm saying, but it's mm. just such a monumental achievement. Yeah, that, agreed. Um, I mean, and, and these these large, and really, I like to think of David Foster Wallace as post-postmodernism. <laughs> like, he is a generate. he is, at least I would say, described our generation in this book and the things that we're going to struggle with and we struggle with mm-hmm. in a way that no one... He's the prophet of our generation. He predicted Netflix. He predicted Netflix. He predicted Instagram. Skype. Skype. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, true. Right? And this is... We're talking 1996. Yeah, when it was written like in the three years before He didn't that. even have DVDs. That's true. Yeah. But he could see where the tech... Like there's obviously so much technology... It's actually kind of funny. I made a note about all of the funny 90s technology that he talks about. <laughs> well, he t- thinks he's talking about futuristic technology, right? I know, but yeah. his his uh, references are all the, yeah. like, you know. Cassettes. Cassettes and all that kind of stuff. So Exactly. It's hard to explain this novel. And we've referenced David Foster Wallace several times already in previous episodes. So, of course, it's... Primarily his commencement, uh, commencement speech that he does yeah. called This is Water, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend reading. It's a yeah. Probably only five pages or something. Uh, yeah, and you can actually listen to it on YouTube. Yes. It's like a 21, 22-minute lecture. There isn't uh, like a good video, but the audio is good, so and it's worth it. And I think we've probably also discussed a few of his other ideas on here, that like especially Suicide, the Suicide, we've definitely talked yeah, about. Yeah, and the conscious and unconscious, which I guess is the This Is Water speech. But, but anyway, uh, we've been planning to do this episode for a while. It's just a long book. And it takes and just, a lot out of you. And it's uh, it's hard to, I think, give it its due. I, yeah. I feel like my mind 
is not at his level, I guess. Mm. I, would, I wouldn't say that... Um, like, it takes my, a lot of work to feel like you're doing his work justice. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, we'll do our best. <laughs> exactly. So, and, we, and, we come at this with a level of humility, hopefully. Oh, we, totally. I mean, you um, have to. This is... Uh, I'm not usually kind of bereft of verbiage. And <laughs> true, true. Like I try, I play this game sometimes where I'm like, okay, how would this author say this thing? Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I can do Dickens pretty well, and a few others, and and probably do Austin decently. Yeah, but there's like I tried to do Foster Wallace, and I just I ran out of words. Like <laughs> yeah. by the third sentence, I was like, no, his words are way more complicated than this. I'm I can't do it. I can't just think of them off the top of my head. No. Okay, I think one of the reasons it's going to be impossible to, I mean, for the most part, usually we talk about the book, or like we talk about what's in the book, we don't talk about the book itself, right? Yeah. Or the movie itself. It's kind of impossible to do that with Infinite Jest because of how much mythos there's around David Foster Wallace himself based on so much of what he wrote in Infinite Jest. Because it's really about him it's it's on it is it it's it's kind of like a stream of consciousness novel but actually put into other characters yeah right like <laughs> yeah. it's which is really the masterful work that he's done well here. the level of detail he gets into about things like tennis and addiction and even politics you couldn't i, I d- well maybe this is an open question my theory is i don't think you could get that detailed without knowing that much and so this is such a meta novel because of how much of the things that you read about in the book are clearly present in david foster wallace's life and then how he kind of got a lot of fame after this book which is something he talks about in the book (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) it is like so much of his life after the book is, is about stuff he talks about in the book. Oh, it's almost like life's so, art. Well, I mean, it, it is. I mean, in, in a sense, he's such a genius that he knew probably this would be the kind of stuff that would happen yeah. if it took yeah. off or like... Oh. So, I mean, it is pretty like... Uh, it's it's. I don't know. It's hard to... This book is beyond itself in so many ways. Yeah. And... I would just say to people out there that I don't necessarily recommend reading it to listen to this episode. I think that you can get a lot out of what Dave and I will talk about today because it's so deep into the human condition. But I would also say that I think it it is a, it would behoove you to read Infinite Jest at least once in your life. Like yeah. I, I think it's something that you will feel proud of yourself for doing. If you and, can and, do it. And you will, there, will, there will be things in the book. I don't know what it will be for you. I know what it is for me. And I think that's kind of what we're going to talk about here. But there will be things in this book that you'll never forget for the rest of your life. Imagery, thoughts, mm-hmm. ideas that he presents. One of the ones I'm going to talk about is how he describes suicide. I had never right. even comprehended that being what suicide was before, mm-hmm. he, before I read him. Yeah, totally. There are so many deep things. So this is going to be a about. dark episode too. It should be noted because yeah, like, but there's a, something kind of like it, like happy time murders <laughs> about <laughs> about David Foster Wallace. Yeah, you know? like, true. Because there is so much comedy in One, it as well. I mean, again, the title "Infinite Jest." Yeah. He's like he's trying to make all of these incredibly dark and and crazy things funny because I mean, 
wasn't it Nietzsche who said like eventually you just have to laugh? Uh huh. Like, or uh, well, the best version of that from Nietzsche is uh, humans are the only animal that suffers so greatly they had to invent laughter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so that's that's, that's essentially present. what this book is. Yeah. Humans are the only yeah. creatures that suffer so deeply that they had to invent laughter. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's the perfect summation. So before we do uh, any like framing of the book for listeners, how many times have you read it now? Two, only two. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I read it. Do you remember the first time you read it? Yeah, it was. Um, so I just lost my job because the Conservative mm. Party had lost government. Oh, I'm really sorry about that, David. <laughs> and uh, so I got a, a severance, and I didn't know what I was going to do. Like, you know, you'd done the same thing for all of your life, and but I didn't know what I was going to do. So I just kind of took a few months, and then I had like a minor surgery that needed to be done. So I. What year was this? This was 2016. Okay. So like <laughs> fall 2015, 2016. Okay. As uh, when I when I read it kind of recovering from a minor surgery and oh, I never, I've just, I don't, mm. and sometimes I feel like I've never recovered. Right. So yeah. Okay. About five years, five years ago started and four, then four, four or this spring. So it'd be like oh, okay. four and a little bit. Ago. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I actually read it for the first time as well. The summer of 2016, that was my summer novel. There to you read. go. And the reason <laughs> So it was a book that I had heard lots about before, and I'd actually also heard the commencement speech he'd done. Yes. And I'm pretty sure I had also watched the movie, End of the Tour. Yeah. With I can't remember if I watched the movie before reading it for the first time or after. I honestly don't I remember. I did it after, yeah. But I remember when I, the, in 2011 and 2012, my first year in Korea, like that overlap, there was a a coworker there who was reading Infinite Jest, and she was just in it all the time uh, when we, the other of us, were planning our lesson plans. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right, right. And I just remember looking at me like, oh, what a huge book. But I'd, I'd heard of it before. Like, I remember it being in the culture. A I think bit. it's just that people talk about it because it is so significant that, mm-hmm. like, on a literary plane, yeah. there's kind of, it's kind of, it's shockwaves going well, for, forward in time. And. Because of, well, as it's made clear in the movie, the end of the tour, Rolling Stone was going to do a a piece on him, right? Like, yeah, he kind of like, became a rock star author, which is not what he would have wanted. Like, we're talking G.R.R. Martin level famous when he was writing it. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, like, Game of Thrones well, is culturally Apparently, relevant. he was also, he'd also released some of the vignettes from the novel to, like, publications, before the novel itself was done. So there oh, was so a lot... people lo- were reading these pieces. Yeah. Like, oh, that's so, genius, yeah, actually. Yeah, so there was, like, parts of the book out there for people to, to read. I don't know that for sure, but I, I kind of remember that from one of the interviews. And so subsequently, I've watched a lot of interviews with David Foster Wallace, and I just got to say at the outset, what a mind. <laughs> like, what a person in the history of the species, I'd say. Yeah, right? like, this is a this is a literary Michelangelo, mm-hmm. or, like, I a... Agree. This is a literary Thomas Edison. And like a beautiful... Einstein. This is a literary Einstein. A beautiful, reluctant purveyor of wisdom. Yeah. Like he's like, I don't want to say that I have wisdom because I don't think well, I Well, he do. wrote one of the smartest books ever. And so obviously all the reporters are going to be like, tell us smart stuff. And he'd be like, I don't feel like I know smart stuff. So quit asking me these Questions that put me on the spot. And there's just something so charming about that. That's how he comes across. And then once he's like, 
feeling like he's authentically self-doubted or self-effaced, he does launch into something just brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once he's like, I just want you to know that yeah. like, I'm not special. So there's something... And yet he is special. I, the, the way I would put it is that what's so cool about him is that he feels so embedded in everything he's talking about. Like, he doesn't feel like this kind of bookwormy, ivory tower intellectual who's just kind of above the fray, studying the human race and then giving his opinion on it. And he does... And he also... He writes for writers, but he doesn't act like he writes for writers. Mm. You know, like there's some artists who only make art for other artists, and like they're like you wouldn't understand it kind of thing. Right. He doesn't do that, right? Yeah. He he, the stuff he's writing about is the rawest, realest, grossest human shit mm. <laughs> that's out there, and he's making it beautiful mm-hmm. because he's observing it at its most minute and thoughtful detail mm, yeah i so agree and as you can tell and as you will be able to tell david and i both have a lot of warmth for this person who yeah so has given i mean it so probably sounds like probably we're just true. basically <laughs> prostrating ourselves to his genius yeah but, uh, but i think once you read the book you see the world different like this is an impot like this is a book I love Dickens. Not every Dickens novel makes me see the world different. No. But some do. Some do. Uh, but not to this level. But, but this book... And, and I actually... So I read it summer 2016 the first time. And then, again, in prep for this. And uh, I enjoyed it the first time. But I was floored this reread. So well, probably the I second don't... reread actually had a bigger impact on me than the first one did. I actually think this podcast has prepared me for a deeper read of this. Because it's made me think more deeply about the books I read. But I think about all the books I've read in between the first time I read it and the second time. And all those books are now influencing this, mm. right? And so, yeah. I yeah, I think I agree. Uh, when you encounter him now, it's a completely different experience. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. I mean, I guess looking for the things that we look for to talk about it on Really True Fiction makes it like a little bit... Uh, you're you're you have a magnifying glass out a bit more what you're looking for, and yet you really shouldn't need it in this book. No, but I guess it's kind of tricky because he does kind of go into these insane levels of detail about things that you wouldn't really expect about everything. I mean, I remember there's like a section I think in like the last quarter of the book where Hal, one of the main characters, goes to the wrong addiction group. (laughs) <laughs> like he, and, he yeah. acts it like he's trying to go to a like a narcotics addiction group, and he goes to like a uh, d- not sure to be how a man <laughs> like self help <laughs> right. group, and so it's like a mistake, right? right? Like the, yeah. the intention of the character, he makes a mistake, and yet there's still like another twenty to twenty five pages about how to be a man, about about him being uncomfortable <laughs> in that room. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so like the level of detail. And we have to say, I, I don't, I can't think of any other novel that has end notes. No, <laughs> there's like a lot 400 of end. end notes in this book <laughs> where he just explains some something of, that he's explaining. And some of them, some of the end notes are like 10 pages of an excerpt of a news article that couldn't quite make it into the main novel. Well, and this is what I bring, uh, this is what I would bring into this. He's also kind of predicting 
uh, internet holes. Like when you go yeah, on Wikipedia right. and you're reading yeah. about something, you're like, oh, I want to read about that now. Yeah, like good that's point. how his mind, that's he's a predicting yeah. a Wikipedia. Mm. Like, you know how we can all get lost in some idea online and just read about it forever? Sure, yeah. He is predicting that mm-hmm. in his writing style. Yeah. Like I'm talking about even the structure of his writing is prophetic towards how our minds are going to work in the future. Yeah, agreed. Uh, okay, so before we really do a, a framing plot rundown, uh, I just want to say again, thanks to everyone who listens. Uh, we absolutely love making this podcast. Um, we have a Facebook group that if you want to join Really True Fiction, you can. You'll get any uh, notices of new episodes being released. Uh, we also have a, an email, reallytruefiction at gmail.com, if you want to send us any of your thoughts about anything. I know probably a lot of you out there have similar passions to David and I, and we would love to hear about them. If you want to give us a five-star rating or a review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate that, obviously, if you only feel that way. But ratings and reviews are a way to really help us move up the charts. So if you feel like you get any value out of Really True Fiction, we'd really appreciate your help in in that and helping to grow the show, as we would love to be able to talk to more and more people about awesome books and movies. And if you have any ideas for maybe how we can uh, change our Facebook page to attract more people or something, <laughs> I don't know. Or yeah, or like <laughs> even suggestions of future episodes. Yes, right? or, or maybe if you want to come on. We've said this in a yeah. previous episode, but if you want to come on, uh, send us an email and mm-hmm. we'll try to make it work. Yeah, we, uh, I mean, I'll have to figure out the remote recording. Yeah, we have to do that. But, but uh, So again, we just were... David and I are so grateful for everyone who listens to us, you know, wince and whinge about <laughs> the, the <laughs> uh, esoteric yeah. intricacies of, of literary of, and cinematic yeah. storytelling. Yeah, so thank you. <laughs> okay, this novel is technically a novel, even though it's filled with like dozens of little vignettes that are so wonderful and iconic and hilarious and 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 heartbreaking more than a plot even it kind of centers around three three parallel storylines that are all marginally related to each other so the main one of the main settings is at the Enfield Tennis Academy in Enfield Enfield Massachusetts and at the Tennis Academy we have our main character Hal in Candenza and he's 18, and his two brothers, Mario and Oren, who are like 20 and 25, I think. For... And they're all still at this time. Well, the thing is, wow. yeah, a lot of this movie jumps back and forth through book. time. Yeah, book, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of this book jumps back and forth through time. Yeah. So they're actually at different ages throughout many different parts of the book. For the most part, that's their ages. And so it's these three brothers, uh, their mom, Avril, and then... Their dad, James, who has the most like gross and creative way I've ever read of someone ending their own life. Yeah. So we'll yeah. get into that later. Yeah. But so anyway, that's one setting. The other one of the other main settings is just down the hill. It's the uh, Ennett House. Is that his name? I think. Yeah. Ennett House, right? N-N-E-T, yeah. Yeah. So it's a halfway house for uh, recovering addicts, uh, narcotic, alcohol, or otherwise. And the main character there is this guy named Don Gately, who's like this, I think he's just like about 27. They, they, and he's like huge. He's a massive guy. And then also this other person, Joelle Van Dyne, who's related to the Incandenza family in that she at one time dated Oren, the oldest brother, and also was the main actress in a lot of 
dad James's films. Which, yeah, which we can get into yeah. as well later. Uh, so that's the kind of sparse but very real connection between the uh, Incandenza family and Don Gately in this Ennett house. Is this Joel Van Dyne character? Those are the two main ones. And then there's a third one that isn't quite as present in the book, but is very important to the plot. And it's these, it's a Quebec separatist triple agent i think by the end seems to be a yeah he's and an american cia nsa type agent uh, marath and steeply who are trying to locate this videotape which we find out later goes by the name infinite jest which was created by james dad in candenza so that's that connection from that storyline to the tennis academy and the reason they're trying to find this movie is because basically anyone who starts watching it will be so enraptured by it that they won't want to do anything else and they just eventually die. Yeah, they, <laughs> they, they become addicted they to be, watching they, this. Yeah, yeah, they become so addicted to watching this. And so a lot of the plot is these two people, Marath and Steeply, trying to hunt down the videotape Infinite Jest which inevitably takes them to Enfield, Massachusetts, because the family of the creator of the videotape runs this tennis academy, and the lead actress from this tape is, is at, the, is at the Ennett House, who has become really good friends with this Don Gately character, who we get a lot of his perspective out throughout the... So there's kind of, like, I would say Hal and Don are actually co-main characters. And the lo- yeah, they get the most first-person yeah. narrative time. Yeah. And yet we still get some perspective of a lot. Like there's a a massive ensemble cast of characters, especially at the Tennis Academy and the Ennett House too, actually. Like there's... (laughs) And actually, uh, interestingly enough, this became kind of a model for people like G.R. Martin who wrote in this similar style for Game of Thrones, obviously much a a dumbed down version Mm. uh, with less detail and more sex. But... um, but, right, you know, but it like is, all of these it, parallel it, storytelling it lines, it, yeah, the, weaving them all together into one yeah. big massive narrative. But it, and then it, but like that wasn't done in in this to the same degree in something like Lord of the Rings, which was much more linear, mm-hmm. right? Linear storytelling from first person, not doing that. And then Tar- a lot of people think Tarantino's style comes from this as well. Oh yeah, well, I, I, those are all great examples. I mean, I, I, what's cool about Infinite Jest is that. Actually, even at the end of the book, the storylines don't converge that much. No, but, <laughs> right? But, but Which is kind cool. of like, like tantalizing yes, you with like yeah. these, this is all happening, and there's people that connect it. For added confusion to the reader, what's so funny is that in the universe of the novel, America has become so corporatized that they have subsidized time. Yes. So yes. the years aren't numbers anymore. They're just named after American commercial products. So the majority of the book takes place in the year of the depend adult diaper. Yeah. Like, so wow. you're getting like it. There's so many like a, instead of chapters, you're getting like different dates, and it'll be like November first. Y D U A U. Yeah. <laughs> right? And there's like, I don't know, there's like the year of the Dove Soap Bar. Yeah, there's uh, the year have, of the yeah. Whopper, I think. <laughs> yes. So there's, there's I think there's like a year of the Whopper. I think throughout the novel there's about seven or eight different years referenced that are just some commercial product. So that's another one of the sat the bit of the satire going on. Subsidized but time. Steeply and Marath's storyline for the most part happens actually in April and May of year of the depend adult diaper. <laughs> Right. Or whatever it is, underwear. And most of the 
and it has Tennis Academy happen in October and November right. of the same year because essentially Marath and Steeply's characters need to know a lot more about the videotape. And describing to you what happens in this book between these characters would take hours and hours. So I'm not well, even going to try. We probably just have to read the book. <laughs> I'm not like, even that's how complicated try. it is. We'd have to read the book. Dude. We'd have yeah to to get yeah. the full flavor. To get David Foster Wallace's full flavor of this book would be, and, that, uh, and he also makes the plot impossible. It's not a simple plot. Yeah, like, that's it's the idea so complicated. That, actually, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You can't actually give a plot outline because mm-hmm. there aren't typical storytelling yeah. narrative events that happen that could even anchor the mind well, into a traditional. And plot. it's certainly not a book to read for the plot. No, no. Even though it does exist sparsely, I would submit, and I feel confident in this because I think both David Foster Wallace and Jason Segal talking about playing David Foster Wallace talked about the three kind of main themes of the book are represented by the like the three storylines, which are achievement, entertainment, and kind of pleasure slash addiction. Yeah. And so the tennis academy being like this for precocious uh, tennis players who want to, they say, make the show, become professional tennis players. This is his critique of American achievement. Which we, we see in, in all sports, but yeah. he chooses tennis. Because it's one he knew. Because it was the one he knew. Yeah. Uh, the Ennett House Halfway House is his meditation on pleasure slash addiction. And then the Marath Steeply storyline is the meditation on entertainment. So a good way to, I just, th- I would recommend to listeners to think about what we're talking about is through the lens of uh, like maybe the greatest ever's thoughts on and critiques of the hollowness of the hollow forms of achievement, addiction, and entertainment. And what they do to the human soul. Yeah. And being that he wrote this in the mid early and mid nineties, like uh, even though this is a great prediction for our generation, I still see this as the generation X Bible. Oh right. Yeah. Like yeah. he is the uh, prophet of the gen generation X. Like he's, he's so, cause I think he was born in 1965. So he grew up in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. Well, he was in his twenties in the eighties and he just so, makes tangible all of the things that would have been on the mind of a person in their early and mid 30s in the 90s yeah hey yeah he he would have been thinking about separation because people were being that the 90s are my favorite decade ever i have i've come to have this like post hoc love of this novel right because 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 i know novel because i know it's of the the era that i love the right. most, right? Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. and and so um, anyway. So I guess we'll go into the three themes then. Well, we can talk about Hal. Sure. Hal in Candenza, or Harold, I believe is his full name, is the youngest son of James and Avril in Candenza, who are these very <laughs> weird people. <laughs> like, Super yeah. Okay. Odd. Also, even before we talk about this, did you notice? No, it felt like not a single person in. The entire tennis academy, the Enfield ETA, Enfield Tennis Academy. I didn't think a single one of them had anything resembling what I would call a normal name, <laughs> right? True. And, and I don't just mean like um, a name that you're not like, familiar with, no like from another Smith's. language or right. something. Yeah, it's no like Muhammad. it's Michael P. Mulis, right? <laughs> or Hal in Candenza, right? Or Ortho Stice, or yeah, yeah. where are or, the Schmitz uh, and the. Well, or or Stitt. There is a Stitt. He's a, or like, um, what was it? Aubrey de something? Yeah. Right? Like, it was just yeah. like, it was so funny how it felt like 
he purposefully made people with names that were that kind of caught you off guard. And they were the ones that were at the tennis academy. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So these were all the like the the. The young people at this tennis academy are children of of big time elites. Yes, in American New England because you society. can't really afford to have your kid, you know, become a professional tennis yeah. player unless you have a lot of money. Although there is uh, one of the hilarious parts of this book are all of the references to Canada. There's yes. so much he knew so much about Canada, which <laughs> is know. so great. It is because he's from Illinois originally, and there's a char- there's a character at this tennis academy named John Wayne. <laughs> and but always in the book they put in parentheses no relation <laughs> yes, yes which is just a great part of the humor right <laughs> and that's so that was just, like the one with the normal name like infinite jest guys He's yeah just he throws a lot of just jokes in yeah like that. so the thing is like i think what's interesting with hal is that this is the this is the character in the book that essentially from the outside has everything right yeah like he's I think he's ranked fourth in the country in singles males tennis at age 17 or something like that. He's kind of like, he's the kid, his mom runs the school and his adopted uncle also runs it. So he's like untouchable basically, yet he's also the best. On paper, he's the one most set up for success and... Even just the way he is, you don't actually think he's like an asshole, but you do feel like he's kind of checked out. Yeah. So obviously, like in the final analysis, Hal is David Foster Wallace's critique of hollow external achievement. Yeah. But the route that we get there is so serpentine that you just like you get you. It's hard to figure out the right metaphor. You've tasted every single micro flavor of the meal you're eating to find out to be full at the end. Yes. With with all of his characters. But I, I feel like I noticed it most with Hal and Don. The two of them, the way that he managed to get to their end, or what is it called in storytelling? Dinoami or Dunami? Right, I don't right. know that French word. Yeah, yeah. I felt like, wow, I, I felt like I lived their whole life with them <laughs> yeah. and then got their feelings. Yes, you know? yes. So I don't know. What do you... What did you think about Hal in this book? Well, I don't know what for some reason he didn't I, feel like a seventeen-year-old, did no, he? No, <laughs> he was a little bit too deep for a seventeen-year-old. Yeah. Like, I don't know very many seventeen. But you know what? The thing that I've been thinking about a lot is there becomes these great divides between people of extreme talents and everyone sure. else, right? Yeah. Like, like I think about what would have been like to meet Mozart when he, you know, when he was twenty-one. He would still be one of the greatest musicians. Yeah. It's not like he's suddenly become better and better. I think they're, it's just extraordinary people are so rare mm. that we're like, well, that doesn't feel ordinary. Yeah. Right? But but Hal isn't ordinary. He's the fourth best tennis player in the whole country. So he's already got a high level of achievement. And what was it? Like, but his he talks, mind. They talk about his verbal acuity as well. Yeah. Like there's like a point in the book made where he's like, uh, he's in some upper echelon of just well, how he reads, it's yeah. a, he's, he's basically got a photographic memory. Right, that's what it was. Yeah. Right, and yeah. so, so we're dealing with a, a genius here. And I mean, let's talk about tennis for a second. There are pages and pages of this book dedicated to the complexity of tennis strategy. I know, and how hitting a ball in a certain way would then be reacted to, and you would be making these calculations mm-hmm. on an instantaneous basis. Yeah. So he's ta- we're not talking about chess here, which you can sit there and think about. We're talking about like active chess we're talking about chess at like 
at a hundred miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, I guess like Hal is kind of this, uh, there is that element of the loneliness of genius. Well, and part of him. the problem is he doesn't feel like he's had to try very hard to get mm-hmm. here. Right. Yeah. Like how a thing that I, that I marvel about Hal is it's like, it isn't hard for him to be great. No. He's not putting in like right. these, this That's extraneous effort yeah. it just to, comes to, to accomplish him. something. It's essentially just given, like, served to him on a platter, and he hates it. It torments him. Well, it's obviously why he doesn't quite appreciate it. Like he knows he should. Right, like that's what's kind of cool about his psychology is that there's a few parts of the book where either the narrator talking about Hal or Hal thinking is like, I know that I should be more grateful for what I have, but I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> right. right? Like, and and he so he's got this kind of ennui to him. This is the right? malaise of modernity. Right? Yeah, we're yeah, like yeah. we're literally talking about and, and comfort and ability and opportunity beyond compare. And his response to it is this sense of apathy. Well, and to smoke weed. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, he right. smokes a lot of weed, which... That's another thing that... Um, it's obviously... It's on the nose with the Ennett House storyline, but there's just so much kind of black market uh, narcotics going on in this tennis academy as well. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, and they're... Because it, he, it's like, like basically the stress that these people are under to perform... Mm-hmm. I mean, if, I don't know if you've heard like uh, about the Olympics, but apparently they have to like ship in huge amounts of condoms because these people are like just oh, so filled with like testosterone or estrogen. They're so stressed out oh. that they just have sex with each other. Like wow. it's insane. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm, it's just, I think imagine the same with t- certain kinds of drugs in these high performing. Mm. It's like trying to turn off, yeah. right? It's just so difficult. Well, and I'll say, I mean, I have to, every time uh, an aside comes up, I have to point it out because this book does it so well. Is that just the way he describes even like a an economy yeah. of of drugs being bought and sold by teenagers in a tennis academy, which he does is breathtaking. He explains <laughs> like, the like he explains exactly how it who operates. Who needs what, when, and why? What like, are the fail safes? What are the contingency plans of this Pemulus guy, who's like the the main drug provider for these people? How he's got like backup phones and f- like a, a, a form of answering the phone so that he has plausible deniability for any future lawsuit coming his way well, because, because this guy's actually planning yeah for, he, like he's he's not the best but he's a tennis player like this guy who's you know what maybe why this book is one of the greatest novels ever written is that it's both deep thematically and a romp experientially, right? <laughs> like there aren't a lot well, of books that manage to do both. The just the level of description is just like how do you how do you compare it? Because it is mm-hmm. so observant. Like he like, goes the details described. He goes are, to like twentieth level detail about a fact no one asked for, yeah. <laughs> but in a way that's entertaining. And interesting. Yeah, and interesting. Like, I mean, you're like, like oh, you I feel, feel like, like I've been educated. I'd be better at a trivia night now <laughs> yeah. because of reading this. Which is what I which is what I don't like that would be the that would probably be the question I would ask David Foster Wallace if I ever was like obviously I can't. Would you be like, but, would you come to a trivial night? Well, no, I would, would ask him like, did you know everything before you wrote Ed Infinite Jest, or did you like have to do a shit ton of research? I watched a, an interview he had to research. Yeah, so well, he did a he, lot of research. He would have had to research a lot, but I would want to know how much. Right. Like how <laughs> right. much of this was already kicking around in your head that you could just vomit out in words yeah because it's like oh i actually know all this about this particular thing 
right? So anyway, (laughs) there might be a few more digressions like that along the way because of how impressive the prose is in the book. So anyway, back to Hal himself. Um, There's one scene in the book that I think really, it struck me very deeply about, I think it's the scene that gives us the biggest clue as to part of the way Hal might be the way he is. And it's the scene where he's talking on the phone to his brother, Oren. So Oren is also apparently this super athlete who is a punter for the Arizona Cardinals. So he's a NFL punter. So like he gets paid good money to yes. basically kick a ball. Exactly. Like he, which he talks about a lot. And so <laughs> turns out <laughs> this is so funny. I just there's so many fun so much funny shit in this book. So this steeply character to go undercover to figure out where this infinite jest videotape is for basically homeland security. He dresses becomes as a, woman. As a becomes a cross dresser yeah. and then pretends to be a journalist and he pretends that he's interested in Oren's punting career but really he's trying to find out about Oren's dad James who made this videotape <laughs> Infinite Jest so this Steebly character is giving a fake interview to Oren about his punting career. about his punting but really he's trying to ask him questions about his dad so there's the scene where Oren calls Hal to start asking him questions about his dad right <laughs> and what's so what comes out I can't remember if it's this scene that the, the info comes out but Hal is actually the person who found James after his suicide. Yeah. Right? Like, And I think he was like eight or nine when it happened, or and 10 maybe. Remember, and then he describes finding his dad. Like, And yeah. then the book describes Hal finding his dad mm-hmm. dead. Yeah. In the kitchen. With his head in the microwave because he used the microwave to explode his head. Yeah. So like James... And then how, one of the descriptions, this is like, it's this sticks in your head and it's just weird. Mm-hmm. He's like, he remembers thinking it smelled good. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Hal finds his dad. His dad has suicide by making a hole in the microwave, like sealing the hole, putting his head in, and exploding his head. So I would submit there are very few things I could think of in real life that would be more traumatizing than being like a nine-year-old kid walking in on that. If you actually imagine what that would be like. I don't want to imagine. No, I don't either, but if... (laughs) If we have to put on our big boy pants and do it. Like what's so fascinating to me as like trying to notice this stuff in the book is that Hal is kind of almost unemotionally re regurgitating this information to Oren. And he's just trying to like um clip his toenails, clip his toenails and get it into the, the yeah. trash can, right? <laughs> like he's focused on that while he's having a super deep conversation with his brother and and in a sense avoiding this super deep conversation with his brother, right? And I think that that scene so perfectly frames so much of what Hal's listlessness is around is that he witnessed this tragedy. He doesn't feel particularly invenerated by tennis, exactly, but he's so good at it that he just doesn't, doesn't have... A mooring. He has right? nothing. He has nothing, and and it's even like I th- page nine hundred. He notices how everyone needs to give themselves away to something. Yeah, and he knows he doesn't have anything he cares enough about to give himself away to. And in the book, it's a perfect character sketch because it's the person who, from the outside, should have everything to be excited about yeah. that they're giving themselves to. Right? Like he is the paragon of what. The cultural achievement should be 
There's a line right? actually in Ennett's house that I think perfectly describes it. And it's like that the wealthy uh, or that being rich doesn't mean or doesn't mean that you don't suffer or have pain. Like right. Essentially is the line. I'm mm-hmm. not quoting it perfectly. He write, he writes it better than I can say it. But but I love that idea is like being successful. I mean, Jim Carrey has that quote, right? I wish everyone could achieve their dreams so they'd realize that that isn't going to make them happy. Mm. Like being successful isn't going to do it. I mean, ugh, like, when you read this, it's like a slap in the face to ambition because mm-hmm. it's like, well, so many people are striving to get somewhere, to trying to accomplish something, to only realize upon arrival that it actually doesn't give anything. Oh, and then yeah. there's that great the saga of Eric Clapperton, I think it is. Oh, Clipperton? Yeah, Clipperton. I, ha- I have that yeah. in there later <laughs> well, and we'll talk a, about a that. different reason. <laughs> we'll talk about that maybe a little later, but the whole point is like it's it's a hamster wheel. Yeah. Like this is I think this is the most important thing that David Foster Wallace ever taught me. Mm. And this, this is the lesson I try to take is no, there's nothing wrong with striving, mm-hmm. but if you think that that's going to make you happy. Right. Like there's a, a, a for a, you know, a philosophical word we brought up before, if it's like a teleological thing, yeah. you're always going to be disappointed because time doesn't end like that. Right, like there's still a tomorrow yeah. <laughs> after your achievement, where everyone who gave you the attention you so desired for your achievement goes back to their lives, and then it's like, oh, and then it's like a drug in that sense, right? exactly, because I mean, you had that one high. The drug theme throughout this book is both literal and figurative. All the things they're dealing with, I mean, entertainment is yeah. a drug. Everything is addiction. Like mm-hmm. it's. So what? But what's so interesting about the achievement factor is that this is something that so ends up being so meta about this book is that I even use the term like this book of being a breathtaking achievement. David Foster Wallace himself achieving a huge the goal, pinnacle, the pinnacle, and subsequently not being very fulfilled. Like <laughs> it's so funny. Not only just, did he sell a bestseller book, everyone who read it said this is the smartest thing I've ever read. Yeah, and right? he. And he just never quite seemed like he cared, <laughs> right? Like, like he he kind of wrote that. He's kind of warning how. about himself. He's yeah. kind of how. Well, he. I don't. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, because because I guess Hal never really cares to uh, procure the achievement. No, but he knows that he's supposed to pretend like he cares about it. Right. Right? Like, he's smart. And so I wonder, yeah, that could be interesting. That could be a... Right, like, I mean, I think David Foster Wallace knew that he was supposed to care, that he'd just written something that yes. everyone was like, yeah. this is the most brilliant thing yeah, that's ever yeah, been yeah. written. Like, he's like, this should be impacting me differently than it is. Mm-hmm. Sure. I agree with that. I, I think we'll talk about it a bit later, too, but I think he couldn't write the Gately narrative function without having the antidote available to him yes. of what he would be dealing with there himself however what it is it's so trippy to think about how much david foster wallace himself talked about the smoke and mirrors vapidness of external achievement and and as a writer he says yeah i want to write good stuff but i also don't want to hang my hat on good stuff because somebody won't like it (laughs) and then and that's going to hurt my and feelings. And that's going to be dif- difficult as well. And so, I don't know. Like, could David Foster Wallace be such a great writer without giving a shit about writing? 
No, <laughs> I, I wouldn't think so. So there's something kind of incongruous almost about his take on his own book. It's true. <laughs> but it's so hilarious. So I don't know, like maybe it, it, the right way to be conceiving of a different meaning of the word achievement. Because when I when I say, when I call infinite jest a breathtaking achievement, I'm thinking along the lines of the fact that a human being could put their willpower for so long into making something so complicated is breathtaking. Yeah. Almost even more than like any specific thing in the book, although the specific things are treasures. So I don't know. Maybe that's the way out. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Um, but I still think that he he must have felt that there was a hollowness to his achievement. Yeah. So Hal, even though he's got all these great parts in the book, like as far as like we would be concerned... There's that weird sex scene too. Which one? Like in the bush. Do you remember that? With him? Yeah. I think that was with Mario, wasn't it? Oh, no, you're right. It was with Mario. Yeah, <laughs> so Mario right. being his, his, yeah, his the middle brother. brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how many things happen in this book. You can't remember everything that happens yeah, true. in this book either. <laughs> he, um, he does love Mario. Yeah. So I think that that's kind of his redemption. Is he loves the fact that he loves Mario and thinks Mario is the greatest human. And I would say Mario is probably the hero of the book with really? Dawn. I think Dawn. Well, but I think Mario, well, there's that scene. Mario is, uh, Mario in Candenza is a, he has a condition. I can't remember what they say in the book. It's kind of like, a, I think he's low level special needs and he's got like a, a stoop, they say, right? <laughs> like he, yeah, he, he can't play tennis. But there's that little vignette near the end where he, he gives the money to the homeless person. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of supposed to be our take from David Foster Wallace that Mario is his favorite character or right. tied with Dawn is his favorite character in the book. So that's why. I mean, the fact that everyone loves Mario and Mario is like the most unassuming person in the world. He's just like innocence and authenticity and earnestness which is kind of like David Foster Wallace's antidote right. to the world is, is almost Goodness. like, like, a, like a, a humble earnestness. Yeah, yeah. But not an unreflected one, which no. I guess would be Mario. Mario's unreflected. Yeah. yeah. He can't help it. So is there anyone else from the Tennis Academy side of the book that made a big impression on you or anything else well, the other, worth the talking other about? Uh, event, let's say, or the is this entire explanation of this game that the kids have invented. Oh, Eschaton? Eschaton. Oh, that was going to be my uh, <laughs> part be... of the book to like, you know how you have like special parts that oh, stick to you? Oh, you were going to dive into that? The eschaton, well, <laughs> no, we can talk about it here. So Eschaton, you know how you said at the beginning of this recording that there's... Um, there's there's parts of this book that will stay with you for the rest of your life. Yes, yes. There were a few parts I kind of vaguely remembered, but the one part I was thunderstruckly remembered or like it was vibrant to me from the first reading was the eschaton segment. Yeah. Eschaton being a play on the word eschatology, which means the end of the world through uh, nuclear, know, nuclear yeah. or armament means. And it's this game that is invented at this tennis academy where Oh my god. It's geopolitical. Um, yeah. It's uh but it involves tennis balls. Yeah, so the tennis balls represent nuclear warheads. There's like an eight court or a four court like four tennis courts board. together. Yeah, board without the nets. And the 
countries, I say in quotations, are spread along the courts and they're given, they're like factions. So there's like China, China, but like, what was it? Sov war, like the Soviet (laughs) union. So like, there's like North America, there's the African countries, there's the Middle East. There's like probably, I don't know, eight or nine different factions. And then they each get a requisite amount of warheads based on their geopolitical size. And then there's just this like, unbelievably sophisticated and complicated mathematical schema that they use to keep track of the points. <laughs> like, like it's like a, it's like a 45, a variable. Have you ever heard of, of Eve online? I don't think so. Okay. So it's this video game, this multi-level or this multiplayer, like almost think world of Warcraft, but incredibly more complex. Okay. And it's in space. Right. And the economy is, almost equivalent in in complexity to our actual economy like mm. you need supply chains right, you need right, to build right. and like to build a ship you need all this kind of stuff and there's an there's economies like currencies can collapse right. and like commodities and you got to pick up commodities yeah, so it's yeah, like, yeah. you can go broke right and there's this whole world built just in the game and i right. feel like eschaton mm-hmm. is an entire world of complexity <laughs> yes in this weird tennis ball yeah, game that they yeah. play on the tennis court and like there's there's economic rules yep. there's and and so what i think it just clicked to me why i love this scene and this in a book that you know you read in a funny book when you're laughing out loud by yourself yes i am in stitches reading the eschaton um <laughs> segment yes. of the book it's like yes. a 25 page and i think it's because the narration david foster wallace starts and maintains a geopolitical nuclear device oration or narration of what's happening all the while it's devolving into like a lord of the flies <laughs> where they're just kids throwing with balls tennis at rackets <laughs> and hitting balls at each other so the 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 humor the real humor begins when this kid oh, what was his name russell maybe the kid who fires first so there's yeah. a pr- so the kid representing libya <laughs> fires a preemptive strike at the soviet union and which means he smokes another kid with a tennis ball from like 15 feet away. But it's like all phrased through a new, were, like yeah. a geopolitical news story or something. He he's like hits this other girl in the face with a tennis ball. And she's so angry at him because this is unprovoked. They're not wars. He's made a, he's made a, a calculation based on his chance to win. He knows he needs a first strike because he has way less. <laughs> he has he, as many way, points. He doesn't have as many points. <laughs> So all of the Soviet Union kids are ready to just run over and beat the shit out of this guy, which would be taking it outside of the game (laughs) because he broke the rules in such a manner. But he's saying, well, no, I didn't break the rules. And then the the referee is like, well, I don't actually think he broke the rules, (laughs) but, but he did something unprecedented, right? Like it's almost like a... It's like a... He understood the the game in a meta way. Yeah, well, you know how sometimes they say about Trump something like um well it's not a chess. well it's not illegal yeah right. I just never thought a president would do this <laughs> right like it's <laughs> right like, a, like it's I never the rules like the notion that the president of the United States would ever have dealings with a foreign <laughs> right a foreign leader about something unrelated just never crossed our minds because we didn't. They weren't didn't own hotels everywhere. Yeah. Kind of so there's like P, this Mike Pemulus guy is screaming at the guys like you can't do that. He's like, well, I think I can. So anyway, what like this entire game devolves into all these kids 
smoking each other with tennis balls and hitting each other with tennis rackets and beating the shit out of each other and kicking them on the ground. All the while, the narration is talking about how the nations that they represent <laughs> are devolving into <laughs> nuclear annihilation. And and it's just, it's too, because he never breaks, he never breaks narration character, character no. in it. And right? so when you're reading it, you're like, what is, when, when the first time I read it, I was like, what is going on here? Like, And then you're like, oh, He's he's just using like this certain way of communicating to describe something funny. So the massive gap between what's actually happening in the physical world and how it's being described in the book is so because it's like it's the smartest and the dumbest thing all at the same yeah. time. Yeah. And so it's just a joy. So that that was the thing that always stuck with me and on top of that there's a, the Decemberists one of their music videos they made it about eschaton. Yes. So yes, that was that's right. Cool. That's right. <laughs> so yeah, my favorite part of the book for comedy for sure is, that, is yeah. the eschaton. And it's like even this time reading I was like <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) I know. It's so good. Like, because just even the way he described, like, okay, so I know I'm belaboring this, but it's so fucking good. When the kid hits the other kid with the first tennis ball, like he he smokes this girl, like it's a, it's a, a boy hits a girl in the face with a tennis ball from like 15 feet away. And so she's raging angry, right? Because it hits her right in the face. And even the way he describes it, He'll be like, diplomatic tension, uh, the diplomatic prowess of the Soviet Union was dipping (laughs) ever lower with the rising escalations. You know, it's just like, like it's like like a news bulletin talking about the way this girl is reacting to this geopolitical event when all that happened, she got smoked in the face with a tennis ball. Yeah, but I mean, if you think about it, like, he's, he's, I think he's also making a commentary on like modern diplomacy yeah right sure, and for like, sure yeah like in how really it's just that we're really pissed that they hit us in the face with well, a tennis ball. and and mutually assured destruction yeah. and the tension between nations that have nukes and and what that would look like exactly yeah exactly and as if like because the whole game is controlled by one referee type <laughs> it's like how how yeah, I guess part of the meditation here could be like how powerless the referee well, that's actually is. International law. It's a commentary on international law. Yeah, yeah this exactly. is why I love David Foster. Wallace. Exactly, it's all layered. Like this yeah. is all intentional. I know, I know. It's so good. So, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> even though there are important characters in the book, like Hal's mum seems to be having a sexual relationship with John Wayne. Yes, and so that's untoward because he's only like eighteen and she's <laughs> yeah. in her. 50s. late 40s yeah, and early 50s but she's described as like super tall and i think actually this is important to hal's character too is that she never gave him a hard time about anything mm-hmm. and and part and hal doesn't even say this directly but part of what hal talks about is that he actually really struggled with that because he felt like he didn't actually have anyone expecting anything out of him well and she never gave him a hard time because of what he witnessed at least that's the impression that i got well i thought I thought from the book she never gave any of her kids a heart. Like she never wanted to be the reason well, they made yeah. a decision. Yeah, you're probably right. But but I think what was interesting is that that but well because the articulation of the brothers comes from Orin and Hal is that that actually really hurt them. Yeah, like they didn't have any guidance. They didn't have any idea of like what's the right thing to do in this situation. Yeah, and that is a critique, I guess, of the kind of parenting of the time of the because um, I mean the '90s that would have been the beginning. I don't know the beginning, but the self-esteem movement would yes. have been really <laughs> gathering up esteem. And that's when <laughs> you're like, you're, you're 10 to, tw- that's when your Gen X is like, 
I early twenties to like five. Yeah, well, I mean, even the self-esteem movement, I think probably mostly affected our generation originally because it started in the nineties. Yeah, but I think a lot of those, yeah. So, so, but it 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 would have been a, a like a critique of, yeah, okay, well, there's like a romanticizing of children, yeah, that can go on that is well-intentioned, I think. Like, I think the self-esteem movement is really well-intentioned because for a lot of people, it's all about, like, being able to not crumble under against bullies or, like, not being able to handle the world. Yeah. But the, the downside is it's not preparing a kid for harsher reality than will generally be seen, right? True. Like, in their schools, let's say. Because the world... The self-esteem movement, the benefits you're going to get from the self-esteem movement, they're not really going to travel well outside of the school. No. <laughs> so, no. so People don't really care about so, and it. I, and I feel like there's like a big part of that for Hal. It's like he just didn't feel like he got what he needed out of his parents as a growing person. Right. Which is part of why he's kind of without direction. Is it mooring? Right? Yeah, no mooring. Right? Like he got, he, his parents never gave him anything to shoot for. Yeah. Right? It's right. like, whatever you want to do, we'll support you. And now that is laudable in one way, I would say, but also can be very, like, make a young person destitute. Yeah, and feel right? lost. Like, I, yeah. I, do, do you know how many things there are that I can do? Yeah. Like, yeah. I need some help here. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, and then um, his uncle Charles is the resident bureaucrat. <laughs> which yeah. there's a hilarious line in the book or a hilarious paragraph where it talks about how Charles, he was small, like all bureaucrats, he was small, but not like from an endocrine way, but more a perspectival way. <laughs> yeah. And that he had the ability to both look like he was receding every time he was walking towards you <laughs> or something. Yeah. It's like, that's yeah. so funny. Because, <laughs> yeah, I think of some of the most bureaucraty bureaucrats i've ever known in my life and they're both like they manage to both be in the room talking and like non-existent all at the same time it's true <laughs> so, it's true yeah apologies to any bureaucrats although i can't <laughs> imagine any of them listen to us except for you erica <laughs> <laughs> right uh so the whole academy like all these kids going through the academy are basically like tragedy cases almost like there's that lamont chu kid who his whole dream is to get to the show to become a professional test player he's like 11 yeah and his psyche is already destroyed right yeah he can't think about anything except for winning and he's like constantly working out and constantly striving to be the best that he can be yeah so i guess my question would be like do you think there's been any change in the social aspiration of external achievement from 1996 to now yeah but too much like i think we've gone, oh you think it's gone worse we've gone too much the other way oh what do you mean like now it's like nobody cares about achieving anything and like our our the measurement of our life is our instagram following and like okay but i mean that could be a different form of external achievement I guess. like no, i don't but know what if... i mean more is like it's all about eating at the right restaurants mm. and like there's a new show on Amazon Prime. I think it's called called Modern Love, and there's a episode in it where they spend all morning trying to figure out where they're going to brunch. But it's not just where are we going to go to brunch. It's right. like 
It's actually very David Foster Wallace okay. episode where it's like, well, it's not just where we are going to go eat. It's like, where do we need to be seen to be eating and then talk about where we ate so that people uh, will know that we are going to the right place that we need to eat at. See, but you know what? That actually just, I actually hear that as kind of the same thing as as the kids, the kids in the tennis academy. Like I hear Lamont Chu's desire to be a tennis pro. The in the same way as I hear, I want to get this level of influence on Instagram. Like it's a goal. Yeah. It's a it's a, it's a goal that you're trying to achieve. That if you get there, you think you'll be happy. Right. If people right? just see us a mm-hmm. certain way, if we're perceived a certain way, then we'll be happy. I actually think the social media influencer YouTuber type is the is the modern example of the desire of the hollow achievement. Hmm. Like that's kind of what I would place now instead i mean i don't know tennis wouldn't have exactly been the thing in the 90s it just happened to be the one he talked about i guess i'm feeling like it just seems maybe that when david foster wallace wrote this book the cultural knowledge of the emptiness of certain forms of external achievement wasn't as much out there as it is now right almost certainly not given that the internet wasn't i mean it was in its very early days in 96 yeah. So it, in a way, it sounds like it's just as bad, <laughs> maybe for young people. I think so. I think it's worse. Yeah. I talk to like people who have teenagers right now, and it's like they're on their phones all the time. They they're they're constantly they can see where all their friends are at all times. They, what? How? There's like this thing on. It's called what's that or it's called snapchat hangouts but you can see where your friends are in the city oh like it tells you they're so like you see if you're you're where you were invited to the party or not uh, right? <laughs> like, yeah. i'm talking about like it's a whole new level of social anxiety i would think right based on perception right 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 and it's because now everyone's c- carrying something that mm. connects them 24 7 to you know upstreaming to the universe right yeah it's kind of like the, f- the <laughs> i mean maybe this is an insight for the end of the episode but the smartphone is kind of like the jet. conglomeration of all three themes. Yes, in, yes. Yes. In, one, in one device. <laughs> in one device. Right? The achievement, achievement of people through social media, yes. entertainment at your fingertips all the time, and it's, you know, a, an addictive substance yes. for people. <laughs> That's so, a great... Wow. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I mean, it would have been... If I, David I Foster, wish I, yeah, I wish I could he, know what he would have said. If he said. was still alive now, looking at the smartphone, would be like, well, fuck me, everybody. There's nothing I could warn you about. <laughs> you did it. Yeah. You did it. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I think the optimist in me would say, you know, putting, putting to bed this first theme, that I, I think that even if for young people that desire to achieve something outside of themselves, like through their peer group or their status groups. I just, I feel like I know I personally went through such a transformation in my, especially my last couple of years of university and my first few years out of it, where I just felt like every one of those illusions dropped away because I started reading people like, not like David Foster Wallace, but not even like just started reading more books about the world and making friends who, you know, like I lived in university for, well, in residence for all five years. Yeah. And the first number of years 
all of my friendships were just like, who's down the hall? Who's easy to see? What's convenient? Yeah. Yeah. And then by the last couple of years, and then once I moved out of university, the friendships became much more authentic in like, who do I want to see? Who do I actually want to go make a plan with yeah. to go see? And I think once you start, once I started spending more time with those kind of people, I started just having more conversations around like the facile nature of a lot of the things that I thought were important status wise, because some of them I'd gotten and I wasn't like necessarily any happier because of that reason. I was actually a lot more stressed out a lot of the times yeah, because of those things. Well, that's the thing no one ever talks about. One of my favorite conversations I've ever had with a, someone that I admire a lot and who's very talented at what I do for work. Mm. When he said, he's like, what, what, what they never tell you that the higher up you get, the more you have to do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like yeah, the yeah, busier yeah. you are, you're just go, go, Or go. like there's that every million dollars you make makes that much more work to get the next one or like to keep it or something. Yeah. Right? Well, like, like there's yeah. all kinds of stuff like that. Right. And it's, you never think about when you're thinking about achieving or becoming something. Right. And this is why I think Hal is so interesting, but like when you're thinking about achieving something, you're usually thinking, oh, and then I can rest. But actually, mm-hmm. that actually just loads more responsibilities right. onto your plate. Well, because let's say Hal does become a professional tennis player. Okay. Now that you're a professional tennis player, got to win a tournament. Okay. Now yeah. that I won a tournament, got to win a major. Oh, now that you won a major, got to win the next major. Uh, yeah. Oh, now you got to win. Now you got to try and get the sweep of majors and this now, year. Now you're not on top anymore. Yeah. Oh, now there's this younger person who came <laughs> up, you know? And so, I mean, we've talked about this lots before on this podcast, but the inability to be internally satisfied with your own presence in the world is exactly what Hal suffers from, right? Like he can't self-motivate. Um, he's He's so sarcastic and kind of like dismissively ironic about things in a very 90s way. But he's not mean about it, but it's just, he, you could just tell, like, from the outside, everyone would want to be Hal, and from the inside, no one would want to be Hal. Yeah. You know, and that's, yeah. and that's kind of, like, that's such a, almost a, such a simple way to <laughs> say it at the end of the book, because you go through this, like, massive ride to get there. But I, that's like the cash out of him. Yeah. And he, and he can't. I don't know. I guess he can't, but he's still young, so he's not like a lost cause, but he's just not able to have that vitality. Yeah, which is, I mean, like you said, that's a tragedy of Hal. Mm-hmm. And yet, I, I guess I'm hopeful for him because he he starts to want to go to things like um, Narcotics Anonymous. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So maybe that's the hope. <laughs> anyway. Well, I mean, I think as we've already said, that is the hero's journey of Mm -hmm. Infinite Jest. And that's the journey from addiction. And he makes fun of it. But like one of the things they talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous is dis-ease. Right? You have a disease. You have Mm dis-ease. And and he's like... And like, that's like... (laughs) A massive insight all of a sudden. Yeah, he's like, like just like, saying it different. <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, it's not. <laughs> it still means the same thing. Yeah. Um, but I think... The book is full of that kind of stuff. Right, where he's, he's like, making fun of it. But I think actually the point that he's highlighting by making fun of it, i.e. making a joke out of something that is an epiphany for a lot of people, mm-hmm. is because he's, he's pointing out actually what's being talked about here is the fact that a lot of people are addicted to substances to escape. Right. They're trying to yeah, escape yeah, yeah. their reality. They're, they feel uneasy. Mm-hmm. They are at dis-ease. Yeah. Right? And 
that's the that's the trouble of the mind. That's the that is actually, and he he, he describes it so many different ways. He's mm-hmm. constantly pointing it out. It's almost like this, you know, he's just repeating the point over and over again throughout the whole book, which is essentially right. the reason that you're not okay is because you're stuck in your own head. Yeah, agreed. Right? All right, so I guess we'll talk about the entertainment theme. Yeah, or the or yeah. the. Video so, tape. so, so, which is interesting because a lot of the entertainment theme, and this is again the genius of David mm-hmm. Foster Wallace, is about politics. Yeah. Well, what is politics? Right, it is a right, form right. of entertainment. So, I would say the breakdown of the book is like forty percent Ennett House, fifty percent Tennis Academy, ten percent yeah Marath and Steepley. Like, there's probably a hundred pages. Yeah. Of them. Yeah. So they're the they're definitely the third of three in terms of importance and emphasis of storyline, but they add so much humor and intrigue. And so we're introduced to Marath, M-A-R-A-T-H-E, who's in a wheelchair, but he's, I think it's like the night of the April 30th year of the Depend Adult Undergarment. And he's in a wheelchair, but he's like at the top of a mesa and nobody knows in how he got Arizona. There, yeah. And we don't know how he got there. And he's there to meet Steeply. And so Marath is a, okay, I don't even remember. He's like a, he's like a part, he's part of a faction of Quebec separatists that make like the FLQ look mainstream kind of thing. Like they're the most radical faction. And yet throughout the novel, we're both led to believe he's like a double agent for the Americans, but maybe a triple agent actually for Quebec kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> we we never really know. But I think ultimately he's trying to meet see his wife again. So that's why he's like betraying his Quebec separatist friends to get the videotape. Yeah. And then Steeply is an American is it CIA or NSA he works for? It's the new whatever the, Right. Yeah. Right. It's like, you know, whatever that because this is supposed is. to be happening in the future too. Yes, but actually, oh, that's interesting. I I read, I tried to um, check, like, okay, well, what actually year is this supposed to be? And based on like some rough, because they there are years, and then adding up the years, it's a, like there's some guesses either 2008, 2011, or 2012. Okay, so it's supposed to be like that kind of right. year, right? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, a lot of their talk happens on top of this mesa overnight of the april 30th to may 1st and it's just like them whinging about how much they hate the other country and why it's so stupid why marath marath hates america yeah like, and he, he just he, is ranting about how horrible america is hates yeah. america because another thing to notice is onan which is the something north american it's all the all, it's basically mexico yeah united states so like, and canada the government of Canada gave America just a huge part of Quebec. Yeah. <laughs> right? Just gave it to Like, yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, this whole section of Quebec. To use as a dump. Yeah. To use as a dump. <laughs> but what, and this is something that's so fucking funny. The Quebecers are still more angry at Canada than they are at America, <laughs> yeah. who abuses their country. Which is, of it's course. Like, yeah. like. <laughs> so, like, part of the reason they want the videotape is just to, like, put egg on the face of the canadian government and stuff like that and there's and i gotta say we live in calgary there's so many hilarious throwaway lines it's like well you know what you know there's what kind of separatists we're talking about those alberta ones nah they're they're <laughs> yeah. the alberta separatists will never really get 
their act together. <laughs> they're all blustery talk and rednecks, but those Quebec separatists, yeah, you gotta watch out for They're the ones you gotta watch out for. <laughs> and so anyway, the whole point of these two characters existing in the book is that they're trying to find this videotape, Infinite Jest, made by James and Candenza, Hal, Hal Mar and Oren's dad, because it has this kind of somatic appeal where if you watch it, you won't want to do anything else for the rest of your life, which includes like eating or going yeah. to the bathroom. So, so you, you die. You die. Yeah, I just found like that's the like logical end game, I guess, of screen time in a right. sense, right? Yeah. Like the addiction to screens, which screens themselves are actually a pretty big topic. Like I was going to ask you what you thought about the kind of Skype well, vignette I love, yeah, in the I book. I love that that scene because he also predicts uh instagram right filters yeah because uh, essentially what happens is he describes the development of the technologies like mm-hmm. people eventually started calling each other and it was always on video but the problem of course was that then people couldn't couldn't pretend to be only half listening right mm-hmm. they actually had to pay attention but they didn't yeah. want to pay full attention they wanted to be able to do other things while they were on the phone so then they then put up screens of yeah. their faces right and then they wanted those faces to look better and better and better yeah and so they got masks because they were self-conscious about how they looked so like there were companies <laughs> that sold masks yeah. for video chats so but like there were masks of your face but like a good but better, version yeah, of your face exactly and then it eventually got to the point where everyone just went back to calling normally. Yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah, I, was what he claimed. But I, and it's interesting because I don't know about you, but Zoom has changed that, mm. right? Uh, for all of us, because I don't didn't do a lot of video calls before. Right, I did a lot of phone calls. Right, right, right. But I was basically never talking to people over video. But like Zoom, it's you like, have well, to. We, yeah, you have to. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I don't know. Like, do you feel? Did you feel any sort of the? Uh, insecurities that he tried to describe in the book when zoom kind of took off i did at first but i think you kind of got to get over it because i mean like you don't those insecurities that you feel when you're on screen i think are different than the insecurities you'd feel around people Mm. you can still feel a lot of insecurities around people and i mean that's an element of shyness but you have to be able to get over that and i think they're they're similar shynesses right right like not wanting to be seen not wanting to be like when you're shy in public, you're si- you have a similar shyness to the one you have on screen. Sure. And I didn't struggle with that really because I'm not that shy in person generally. Mm. And so then I was like, well, I'm not. I don't. So I think it transferred yeah. over. But but don't you think it's at least a little bit uncanny to like see your own face? Yeah, I mean, it, I, right? it's I try not to look at my own face, right? Because <laughs> it's like, well, why would I be just staring staring at in the myself? same way that I felt it when I first started editing this podcast, like hearing my own voice? That's true. Because yeah. it's different in your head than it is to the outside world, right? Yeah, true. And so, yeah, I, I wonder what he would think about all this stuff now because he did write it in a way that, I mean, the joke of that whole vignette is that people just go back to the original technology because it actually it actually it did everything, served better, the right, purpose yeah. you needed. I don't know. Like, I wonder, I, I feel like that one, he, he you might be right. He might have kind of got that one a little bit wrong. I think he did, yeah. In the sense that I think people would be, well, I don't know. I don't know that. Like, this could be very individualistic, right? Yeah. Like, down to a particular person. Like, maybe there are lots of people who hate video calls. Because they just don't like how they look, being reminded of what they look like all the time, right? Yeah, I guess I'm pretty lucky in that I was never going to make any money through my looks anyway, <laughs> so I never had to like you be, too, to worry about be too concerned about. That. 
<laughs> you know? Yeah, you got over it uh, younger than some people Well, you do. know what? Uh, it's worth noting when you have no choice but to develop a personality. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, no. but yeah, that's, that's cool that you, cause I, I don't have Instagram, so I didn't even think about that, but yeah, he predicted Instagram yeah. and then well, the filters, what was the right? scene where he predicts Netflix too? Well, it's where you, where you don't have to like have cassettes anymore. Right. It's just streamed and, into yeah. your, but, it, but it's like, does he talk about the internet? I don't think he really no. does. No. So it must've been still just too, too new of a technology. For him to really be, yeah, able I don't to think he, I don't think he could have understood that kind, of, which is why I like him so much because he's one of the last remnants of a time of a pre-internet where we, world where we weren't so interconnected, right? Yeah, so where like individual reflection, it's almost like I don't know if we'll ever see anything of his like again because it's such deep individual undistracted reflection on right. things, right, 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 and like <laughs> nobody can be that yeah. undistracted now. It's true. That's very true. Although okay. I would say that a lot of his writings, a lot of the little phrases that he has yeah. would be great tweets. Yeah, true. Absolutely. <laughs> what is your take then on Marath and Steeply? <laughs> Oof. I, mean, I think they're hilarious. Yeah, they're silly, right? Like, And a lot of the things they argue about. But I like how he then throws like page-long diatribes about political philosophy. Mm. And like... Arguing, Through their mouths. Yeah, arguing yeah. about the difference between... Or steeply is arguing for like the 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 merits of America and like it's actually a dialogue between two states and their ideas right. of yeah. themselves. Yeah, right. Yeah, and he yeah. does it. He does it in such a, a masterful way while having the hilarity of steeply basically being currently dressed as a woman. Mm-hmm. And right? like <laughs> and like, it's amazing how often it's referenced. Yeah, like just like <laughs> steeply. Uh, flicking a cigarette and getting it caught in his wig or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> like wearing a mini skirt and yeah. heels. So yeah, okay. Here's something. This is just infinite jest gold. Okay. You have to imagine these two people, one of them in a wheelchair. Yes. The other one like scantily in clad in drag, standing out all night on top of a mesa in the Arizona desert. Which is cold. Which is cold. (laughs) Smoking. Smoking cigarettes. (laughs) Talking about massive geopolitical events (laughs) and political philosophy and what they would do with the videotape and why America is better than Canada or vice versa. And the nature of entertainment and why entertainment is so addictive. (laughs) Like Like in no other book could you... Propaganda. Could you describe this with a straight face? No. (laughs) I guess I don't exactly have a straight face right now, but... It's so funny and so it's whip smart. The right? interview is also mm. an incredible yeah piece of writing. Oh, yeah, so yeah, I guess they're like interesting mouthpieces for the political undertones of a lot of like the intrigue of the book, right? And there is a lot of philosophy talked about, especially the kind of difference between a more hmm, I don't know what would you call Marath socialistic. Yeah, more, more communitarian ethos, ethos yeah. versus a more individualistic ethos. Yeah, and it is it is fascinating, actually. Yeah. Their pursuit is for this videotape infinite jest. And I think we get some description of it in that what's actually on the tape is this actress, Joelle Van Dyne, who's actually now staying at Ennett House, who was the darling actress oh even i can't believe we forgot so james incandenza is a director is a director like he just yeah. kind of took on this second life <laughs> yeah. after he started the enfield tennis academy he's like oh by the way i'm actually just gonna go direct movies now for <laughs> the rest of my-. and like not like not real movies no. like bizarre auteur movies right 
And one of the great parts of the book is all of the just digressions about different movies he made. Yeah. <laughs> just like just pages them. of what's going on in these <laughs> weird movies that he made. And so he found this Joelle Van Dyne actress because she was dating Oren, his oldest son. She wears a veil for the movie because, and the reason she gives is she's too beautiful that people will go crazy if they, if they see, see her. her. Like yeah. literally they'll go insane. She's like a, a Lovecraftian um, beauty. Cthulhu yeah, 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 yeah. of beauty. Right? <laughs> yes. And so, so she's apparently in this videotape, she's death. Like she is the character death and she's dancing. And it's so bewitching that you just watch it till you die. And that's all you want to do. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to do anything afterwards. So what's that all about, do you think? I think what it is fundamentally is it's once you've accepted death, why would you want to keep living? I mean, that's the great conundrum of awareness. Right. Right, right, right. right. And But it, you know what? It, it, that particular part of the book reminded me a little bit of Brave New World. Yeah. Where it was the, um, the, Soma, the, drug, yeah. the Soma drug that they take in Brave New World so that they can be pacified so that they don't... Again, it's so that they can be unconscious in, in Brave New World. So they can be unconscious so that they don't have to care about their pain or their anxiety or their the things that will hurt which, them. Which is fundamentally why the most important part of this book is about addiction. Mm. Because that's what addiction is doing. Right. Right. And so this the every every theme that he's drawing together here is all about the same thing. So mm-hmm. what, when he's talking about entertainment doing that to a person, to sucking out their desire for life mm-hmm. itself, and one way to do that is entertainment. But what is it all pointing towards? Yeah, that? but uh, but I think that there's something awesome about how there is a strong emphasis he makes in the book on like television specifically mm-hmm. or screen because that was one specifically. of his personal heavy addictions. Mm-hmm. Was like he yeah, would just he... sit there for days watching TV. And I think it's not like that's not. Uh, I've heard that before from people of his generation, like yeah. the the latchkey generation of kids who would just come home from school and just watch TV for several hours. Then they every go to day, sleep, right? And just how that was kind of what you did. Yeah. And the lack of an ability to be able to engage. Because, like, obviously all these people who want to just watch this Infinite Jest movie till they die, and this is David Foster Wallace's point, they're unconsciously choosing to not pursue the other things in their life that might that would give them more meaning yeah. than their entertainment. Which, right? I'm throw a little weirdness into this, but the, mm. the sex scene with Mario... <laughs> yeah, it's actually yeah. pointing to something real uh-huh. that could happen that you go, that you could experience if you weren't. And Mario's not everything. ready for no, and it's like, but it's so almost not traumatic. That's totally it's mm. so visceral, right? This experience and mm-hmm. real and alive yeah, compared yeah, yeah. to the watered down, diluted, yeah. uh, hazy version of reality yeah. that entertainment produces yeah. for you through a media you're not you're not participating mm-hmm. in a, in entertainment yeah well and i this is why i mean in the song smells like teen spirit i love the line here we are now entertain, entertain us, us. Yes. you know and that's another like that's a gen x anthem <laughs> and this being a gen x bible it makes the, sense the entertainment like the, the rise of the entertainment drug for this generation Right, like it just would have been. We have phrases for it: Netflix and chill. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, that's more our generation. What I and mean the is, generation though, that, after. 
but it's it's there, right? Like, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, entertainment is here in a way that it never was before. Well, this is like David Foster Wallace literally had a front row seat to the generational change of media. And if that, that yeah. is like radio had a generational change, but television did something else to people. Well, it gave us pictures, mm-hmm. right? In a way that like it made it so much more real. And you know, like I even feel this a little bit myself, like sometimes in the morning before I go to work, I I throw on like Sportsnet just so I'm like not alone. Right. In the, you know what right. I mean? Like right. just so that there's someone else talking. And I and I I you know, I hear stories about people saying like yeah, the, their parents they put on the TV so they don't feel so alone. You know, yeah. like there's a newscaster talking to them or there's like so a broadcaster of some sort, like someone they can, you know, quote unquote, trust. And isn't that what we do with social media? Well, except we're not alone because we are actually directly communicating with someone or to some degree. Yeah. It's a weirdly passive form of human interaction. The television. Yeah. Yeah. Television specifically yeah. And, and screen. And like, obviously, I am not here bashing television right like how (laughs) many movies yeah there wouldn't be this podcast movies and tv are deeply artistic but you know that's a point like i would say like often you and i we engage with our screens intentionally right right like we are conscious of what we're what we're watching why we're watching it and i and i have to say like i don't mean this as a like a horn uh horn trumpet toot for right. myself, but right, right. I feel you're not tooting your own trumpet, is what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not horning my own toot. I can't make it any more clear than that. Um, I am way more discretionary in the TV shows I watch. Yeah, like I'll feel a pull, like oh maybe that'd be fun, but there's only so many hours in a day, and that's probably trash. You know what I? You know what? Here's a here's an example. Uh, I either usually I'll listen to a podcast or have have a movie or a TV show on when I'm falling asleep. Okay, yeah. Almost always. Yeah, but that's um that 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 can be like almost that seems a little different to me. Maybe that's a comfort thing. That's like, like a lullaby almost. Yeah, like true. I I always throw on like a YouTube video of a lecturer, a public intellectual talking about something, and maybe I'll ingest right, some ideas in my yeah, sleep yeah. or something. But that's intentionally put on so that I can fall asleep. Right. With right. like it's playing a similar role to music would. Right. In that scenario, whereas what is being talked about in the book. Is specifically the form of shutting your passive, mind unconscious consumption consumption of entertainment that once it's over, you don't feel any more edified, but you are just going to keep doing it again and again and again. And like literally, Infinite Jest, the videotape, people watch it again and again. I mean, there's a hilarious scene earlier early in the book where the uh husband i guess no the yeah the husband of a saudi dignitary or something like that gets a hold of the tape yeah. and it's just like he's like watching it over he does he ignores when his food shows up or <laughs> yeah, something like yeah, that yeah. And, and he's just literally passive unto death so yeah it's it's, uh, it's no mistake she's dressed up as death no. in the tape but when i'm saying these points now there's an element of me that's like well duh luke um, <laughs> mindless television bad right well that's not what you're saying but being that this book was written 
majority of it was written in like 93, 94, 95. There was a lot and of there isn't an internet yet. I just don't know how in the zeitgeist these critiques of these forms of entertainment would have been yet. Right. Right. Maybe he's one of the first great cultural. And, and the thing that's so specific to David Foster Wallace is that he does it way more intricately than anyone else does. Yeah. About these really, you know, issues of his time kind of thing, right? Yep. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. Any other I just think steeply morath videotape um, thoughts? I think that a lot of entertainment? this has less to do with what you're consuming and a lot more to do with how you're consuming it. Okay, yeah. Like, because I've watched people mindlessly watch The Office over and over again. Ah, yeah. And then I don't watch The Office like that. Mm-hmm. I watch The Office for the story and in, and in a sense of enjoyment and appreciation and, off, and often relaxation. Right. But that means also that I don't watch The Office over and over again, right? The same episodes. Because mm. then, it be, then, it's, then it is kind of mine. Yeah. What are you doing? Are you learning something new? Mm-hmm. Or are you participating in a ritual that brings you comfort? Because that's the kind of enter- entertainment that I think he's talking about is ritualistic yeah. comfort. Mm-hmm. That's death. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the death before death. Yes. That he makes. Because you're, not, you're not experiencing anything novel. Mm-hmm. You're just you're just consuming for the sake of consumption. Well, and I mean the the whole you know, in Brave New World, the drug soma. I mean, our somatic system is based on like our hedonistic pleasures, yeah. right? And it's um, it's the it's like the most animalistic form that our interaction with the world can take. And he talks about that this isn't a little violent. Bit. Like he talks about pornography a little bit mm-hmm. in the in the book, and mm-hmm. I think that that's another form. Of um of it can be another form of of entertainment, mm-hmm. just shutting your mind off. Yep, like going for some kind of experience and like repeating repeating the same activity with no outcome. It's just pure activity. Right? And I'm not saying that's wrong. Like there's a there's a line in this book where he's like, one of the things you discover at a halfway house when you're living there is that everybody pretty much everybody masturbates and way more than you think. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. like. That's just a human reality, I'll say. <laughs> but like, what is pornography doing in that? Like, because it's also taking away our imagination. It's a passive form of masturbation, mm-hmm. which, like, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's that was a good. Uh, like, that's how it's framed in the book. Is just the. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's funny to say it this way, but the 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 tragic waste of time that this videotape is for people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't remember, like, did, did James make it that way on purpose? Like, was he trying to just, I think he was, he had reached, if I remember correctly, and ugh, it is such a big book guys. So like, yeah. don't, don't hold me. It's to hard this. to remember every detail. But what I recall from my reading of it is he created it because he realized the futility of entertainment. Hmm. Right, and he wanted to kind of like make that statement. Yeah, and I mean, interestingly, obviously, considering his arc ends in suicide, James Incandenza's character seems like someone very dissatisfied. Yes, right, like he is not Emerson's hero. No, in the sense of um, discontent is infirmity of the will. Like there's a, there's a huge discontentment to a lot of what is motivating James. Yeah. 
so he's trying to make these like auteur style films that are supposed to show like he's like trying to flaunt his own genius yeah right which is the anti-david foster wallace lesson yes so i think that's probably why james's story ends in literal death is because it's supposed to show that he's someone who like what is it you'll die a thousand deaths before your last one yeah well he's like when you worship beauty Mm -hmm. you know and i mean james's worship takes the form of joelle's beauty and then the technical equipment he's using and the different ways he can make a shot happen and the weirdness and like how off put he can make his audiences in these like um doesn't he he have one movie that makes people vomit (laughs) yeah yeah and it like it's almost like the way the way that and 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 I know it's not exactly like this because David Foster Wallace was actually um, a pretty big fan of David Lynch, but that's the director I think of when he's describing the way that James would make his movies is like a kind of art house, art house, but like less talented, but kind of equally weird as like a David Lynch type. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like what am I watching here? Yeah. And it's but I'm off put by it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. That will move us nicely into Annette House. Okay. David has to pee again. <laughs> this one I'm leaving in. So, yes. Annette House, full of alcoholics and narcotics. Ix. I don't know how to say that. In <laughs> Basically, the same way. substance abusers. Substance abusers who. The word he capitalizes whenever he uses it. Substance. Yes. As if it, it's a thing in and of itself. And just the um, kind of awesome way like these are kind of his heroes in the book these really downtrodden people who are in so many ways described in such an ugly manner but i feel like these are the people david foster wallace was cheering for yeah it was the the people who weren't given up yeah they were like low status homeless otherwise that's why they're there right yeah I, i think this is a good start into it as there's a line an ironist in a boston AA meeting is a witch in a church <laughs> yeah there's no irony yeah in and meeting. and that's such a great like what what i personally found so uh, resonant in his in in all the talk around the substance abuse was how even though aa is so cheesy part of it being so cheesy eventually forces you make it impossible to lie to yourself about what you're doing yeah you can't you can't go into a into an addiction recovery situation i think and be like ego filled Mm -hmm. well he's got that one passage where the one girl is uh, like still kind of blaming other people along the way like she's saying i know it's my fault but this person did this and just like the way he describes how uncomfortable everyone in the room is because they know that she just hasn't got it yet. Yeah, like, <laughs> right. And it's like, it's actually, uh, it's, it's great. Like, it's great. Cause it's that discomfort that you feel when it's like, Oh, I just wish you could be like a little bit more mentally mature. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's these, I think the reason he's seeing these people as heroes is because they've hit, they've hit the wall mm-hmm. of human misery. Right. Like, because I, I, you know, I've had a few, encounters with addiction myself and i'd say there's nothing worse than feeling like you're never going to get out of Mm. a pattern of behavior your behavior that you know is is ruining everything for you and 
to confront that and to actually overcome it. I think I think that is what he admires, and I think he admires it because he understood it. Mm. Uh, someone told me today, uh, we write what we know. Right. And, I mean, another, yeah. another, <laughs> another yeah, yeah, yeah. great quote is, you know, all fiction is autobiographical. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think those two quotes combined kind of give us why I think Annette House is so important to the story, but also why it's so important to David Foster Wallace is he's writing two things that he knows better than any maybe genius had ever expressed to us. And I, and personally, why I think this is one of the greatest books is he goes into one of the most traumatic human experiences and shines a gigantic spotlight on it and says, this is what it's like to live like this. Mm-hmm. And what does he shine the spotlight on? Addiction. Mm-hmm. And for him... He's addicted to so many things. In fact, he feels like his whole life is addiction. Mm-hmm. There's that great quote where he's talking about AA meetings, but he goes into this kind of rant about, like, there's these quietly told stories at AA meetings about yeah, people yeah. who eventually give up everything until they're just sitting on a chair not doing anything because they feel like they could be addicted to anything. <laughs> yeah. And they eventually just fade into nothingness. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Wow. Like that's the mind of an addict, mm-hmm. right? Who who hasn't been able to overcome what I would argue is the under the root of what's causing the addiction, mm-hmm. uh, and so so they go to anything to escape the thing they're trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. And blame can easily be and one blame of those blame is like a is like um, if you think about like Maslow's hierarchy of enlightenment, let's call it right. I think. Like victimization is one of the lowest rungs because mm-hmm. what, of what use is blaming others for your own condition? Well, but I mean, it's uh, I think what explains the uncomfortability of the people in those scenes is that they know that blame is of no use. Yes, well, that's so what I'm saying. Fact, They've rised above the, the fact that this person is still blaming people, even if it's just in like the tone of voice of the comments along the way. Let them know that this person is still kind of stuck at a level of that higher pyramid of hierarchy of needs that you refer to there that they don't know they're still stuck in but everybody else knows so there's (laughs) there's an inequality there that is embarrassing it's that that like old reddit quote like who's gonna tell them well it's like when someone who's too old to throw a tantrum throws a tantrum yeah and it's uncomfortable because presumably everybody around the like adult if it, you ever see an adult throw a tantrum it's 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 off-putting to yeah. say the least <laughs> yeah, so maybe this is a more extreme example than i mean to be making but just when you when you know that you are a little bit ahead of the game than someone that you're around and you know what everyone else knows and everyone else knows that that person is trailing behind a bit but it's almost like let's say you're playing a board game Mm. and it's a complex board game and everyone knows the rules except for one person yeah and there's a little bit of discomfort because it's like we're kind of like this person isn't going to be able to win but they keep like (laughs) insisting they know how the game works yeah Yeah, exactly but i i was i was pretty floored by that um an ironist in a boston a meeting is a witch in a church and i and i just think that that's a perfect encapsulation of wallace's antidote which is earnestness. Which is earnestness, yeah. right? And I agree. I mean, like, that's the thing that fixes a lot of the problems that he's talking about in the book, right? Yeah, you, it's going to be really hard to be pursuing 
hollow achievement mm-hmm. if you're being earnest. Well, and this is something that I enjoy about Don Gately's character is there's um, a section where we learn that he, uh, even though he lives in a halfway house, he works at a homeless shelter. Like he cleans there. Yeah, and yeah. just the disgustingness of the homeless <laughs> shelter is pretty gross. It's just kind of like he's grateful he's only an addict. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like there's that hilarious <laughs> contrast between like he's he's like a he's like at the second level and Hal is like at level 8000 and Hal is unhappy because he's not at level 9000 <laughs> and Don is happy because he's, he's not at level, level 1. Two. Yeah. <laughs> or level <laughs> you know? 2, right? And uh, yeah. it just reminded that like part with Don reminded me a bit of this idea I heard on a very bad wizards podcast once called contrastivism where it's like <laughs> a very difficult name for a pretty easy concept which is like how bad am I? Well, compared to what? Right. Right. Or right. how good am I? Well, well compared, compared to, to what? what? <laughs> right. <laughs> and like this that. is in a different way. This is actually a point Jordan Peterson makes in his critique of people who hate the West. Yeah. Where he's like, you know, the West is a oppressive patriarchy that that is that is horrible to humans, and he says, as compared. To what? Yeah. <laughs> right? To like, what regime? What, yeah. what other place in the world are you going to compare to that is doing better? Yeah. And then, if nowhere, or maybe there is. I mean, I'm I'm agnostic and open-minded to whatever systems in other nations or other cultures are working well for their people. Yeah. Although, how well we know that about that is contingent on like how good we can get data from places. Well, and then the that thing, depends right? on like how corrupt are the people giving us the data of different <laughs> places and stuff, which I don't mean that to dismiss it. I mean to say the job's way harder than any activist actually thinks it is. If yes. that if they're gonna take it on for and you real. can't just you can't just say, Hey, look at this country. It's like, well, countries are very complex systems. Exactly. You need to <laughs> dissect it entirely if you want to be taken seriously by a thinking person. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And, and then again, there's the well, no society good has existed yet. And it's like, well, that's pretty risky too. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's a different podcast. But I, it reminded me of that contrasting of like. Um, I like that contrastivism. Yeah. Like, well, okay. Compared to what? Yeah. Compared to what? What are we talking Like, there is a kind of. What I like about Gailey is that there's a kind of intrinsic interconnectedness between everything. And that's what David Foster Wallace's point is, right? Is that. Don Gately is kind of the hero of the novel because he can actually, in his really kind of rudimentary way, notice how everything is connected to everything else and how can't. Yeah, right? Hal has lost all connection. Yeah. And, and Gately only gains more and more connection as he emerges from his lack of desire to deal with reality, which is obviously interconnected. Mm-hmm. And what's cool about Don is that he's willing to admit his own ignorances even if they're like a little bit embarrassing so there's actually this really kind of cute charming part of the book where he admits that he doesn't know what it means to be striving for a higher power yeah right like he just doesn't he doesn't know it's not even that he knows it's not that he doesn't know what a god would be it's just that he doesn't know what it could be if there's no god 
and he's in AA talking about it. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Like he's, and yet in the culture of AA, it's just like, give it up to the higher power, 12 steps. You're not in control. Oh, that great right? line. He, he learned that God is not terribly interested in whether you believe in him or not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like I had a, I wrote a question to him. I was like, well, once you transcend embarrassment, do you learn? And I think that that's a nice way to think about it. Right. Like I feel like a lot of resistance to learning is because of the, the fear of mild exposure of the ego. Right. Right? And Don is able to figure out how to cop to that. Right. Because right? he's, he's like, basically reached a point where it's like, well, the ego is like, I can't have that much of an ego. I, well, I was, this substance took me over. But this is why I love his, I, I don't, it's not a first person, it's a third person, but we still get into his head with the way Foster, David Foster Wallace writes about it. Like, he is not thrilled with the idea of mi- admitting he doesn't know what the higher power means. Right. Right? Like, no, he's like, no. everyone talks like they know what it is, and I don't. And I feel kind of <laughs> stupid for that. So do I really want to admit that to everybody? Yeah. But I actually don't know. So if I'm going to play by the rules of AA, I have to admit it because the rules are talk the truth. Yeah, right? so then the I have tr- to say I don't the know. The truth is, I talk, so he goes up like, I talk about this higher power and the truth is I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> Which then, and it's like, it's such a simple all- thing in the book, but it's such a profound admittance to, it's like, here's my humility. Yeah. Here's my earnest humility in my ignorance. Can anyone help me with this, please? Yes. You know? Yeah. And what's so vital in the book is that that's the mem- like that's one of the moments where there's so many good hearted people willing to help him. Yeah. Right? I mean, I actually I made a note on a line lo- uh, on a line that was written during all of this AA stuff is um well, I, I can't remember if it was during an AA meeting or in Ennett House, but it's a line where that there is such a thing as raw, unalloyed, agendaless kindness. Right. Right? And I think that there's a connection there between that kind of like, mm, okay, I'm going to expose my ego, but then the people... But then you're going to be kind. Like, and, the agendaless and kind basically, people. Basically, it's kind of what he worships. Mm-hmm. Like that, It ends up being kindness is his religion. Yeah. And I love that because, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much you've experienced. I think our family's actually quite good at this. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, one of the maybe superpowers of our family. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that makes, uh, and from what I've been able to gather in my, you know, anecdotal evidence that I collect in life of families, it's a pretty rare commodity mm-hmm. is kindness. Well, and I would also submit something uh, surrounding the concept of infinite forgiveness. Yes. <laughs> true, true, true. <laughs> you know, and that's no jest. No, <laughs> it might be infinite though. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. That's a good way to to frame it is that kindness kind of becomes Gately's religion. Yeah. Something to keep in mind is that this is a this is a perfect candidate for meathead. Right? Like Gately he's is huge. He's, he, I think he's like he's like supposed to be like 230 pounds of muscle. He's like 6 foot 3. He's 27, so he's in the prime of his life and he gets all of these kind of like otherwise low status jobs he's like a a, he's a kind of a veteran of the senate house which is why he's got more responsibility basically like all the other people look up to him he drives the vehicle yeah he's the responsible person oh yeah he has to turn all those cars around (laughs) which is another great little (laughs) infinite jest story uh and he has a terrible backstory like very sad and and like traumatic backstory and so he's like a perfect candidate 
for someone to go the unconscious route unto death, right? And well, so I, I think Gately is kind of the team shell character of yeah, the book, right? Yeah. Like he's like the East thou of Eden. Mayest. Thou mayest choose some different path. Well, if but like, you isn't try. this isn't this the hero's journey? And and the interesting thing is that I think why people like David Foster Wallace so much is that his hero's journey is the journey of the soul. Like it's the most mm-hmm. internal journey. Like, what's more internal internal than dealing with addiction? Right. Like, what is more difficult than admitting that there is a substance outside of you, wh- whatever it may be, that consumes you? Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't even know if, if that that has been really understood within literature in the same way. Like, Shakespeare, did he really understand addiction or did he kind of almost glorify it? Like, you look at the obsessiveness that Romeo and Juliet have for one another. That's like a, a mental illness almost. And David Foster Wallace is saying that the great, the greatest journey is almost that that uh, Marcus Aurelius esque conquest of the self. Mm. And what is more glorious than a than a self that can conquest like the, some really dark demons, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's I think that's that's what he's trying to talk mm-hmm. about. Definitely. And I think if you think about maybe the Christ figure, and what is he telling people? He's saying like that redemption is possible. And I think at the end, uh, or <laughs> I think what David Foster Wallace is telling us is he's saying redemption is possible. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. And yet, it's funny you mentioned Shakespeare, because if you think about like the way that our motifs are told through stories, over time, they've gotten way more complicated, right? Like I remember uh, hearing one time about how the Bible is such a, like a bare bones narrative. Mm-hmm. Like you hear about David's and he did these things. Um, these things, right? And then he felt this way, <laughs> right. right? And then Shakespeare was even more complicated. And Romeo and Juliet, I, I interpret... I mean, it's been a long time since I read Romeo and Juliet, right. but I interpreted that whole play as just like, actually, tragedy has no bounds. Right. <laughs> right? Like, right, right. The, the tragedy of the politics... <laughs> Is can, the tragedy can of the become individual. the tragedy of the personal eventually, right. and, the, and, and which is be, and that and the tragedy of the individual becomes the tragedy yeah. of the familial. So I, right, I I'd saying. have to read it again. I don't remember the tone of Romeo and Juliet being praising of what Romeo and Juliet do, right? As much as it's observing that this is really sad, true, <laughs> and, true, and true. young people are can be really stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then. You get even more of a complicated way with Dostoevsky, let's say. True. Right? And maybe David Foster Wallace being the next stage of that evolution, where he's even way more complicated than Dostoevsky is, I think. Yeah. yeah. In, in so many ways. I think he in is. The details, anyway. Certainly in the details. Right? Yeah. So, and right. so, like, it's an evolution. This of unbelievably thought. complicated way to maybe get to some of these really simple motifs. That's why the experience of reading the book is part like it's it's kind of its own quality as well. Well, I could al- right? I would almost say that the way that he teaches you these maybe simple truths is the way you would learn them in real life. Yeah. Because it's constant moments. If you recorded your whole life. Yeah, well documented <laughs> moments. Yeah. He's basically described like his his characters are going through moments. Mm-hmm. Like consciousness moments. I never ever thought I'd think as much about tattoos. Right? As I do right. when he explains them. You know, because yeah. there's, there's a character in Ennett House who's fascinated with tattoos. And so you just get this like 15 page rundown of all the different ways that tattoos can be done. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you, wow. Yeah. 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 
there are a couple funny lines that Don has that I think is, um, so this is on college student addicts. They are constitutionally unable to learn from anyone else's experience. <laughs> and that's um, so funny because I know we've talked a lot about how uh, so much of enlightenment is just being able to learn from someone else's experience. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I, I, I think I mentioned it last episode how like the the percentage we use at work with kids is that approximately 85% of learning is experiential, right? Well, that still means the way I flipped that around. I was like, well, that means 15% of it isn't. Yeah. And let's, yeah. let's maximize that 15% while we can. Yeah, there's like these crazy scenes in the book where – the college students just don't learn from any of the people in Edit House, right? Yeah, Who are going yeah. through it. So I don't know. That was just something that struck me. And the daily bullshit here is hip deep and not so much annoying as soul sucking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think probably just to wrap up Gately, then uh, we should talk about his kind of heroic. Oh my God. There's just this amazing scene um, about. 800 pages in this book what is it it's like 1100 1100 and something pages so about 800 pages in there's this character in Ennett house named randy lens who we've gotten some like he kills cats yeah for like that's his new addiction instead of doing yeah he's like you get this detailed description of basically this cat hunt so the background is on this night I think it was this night. It might have been an earlier night, but I'm pretty sure it was this night. Lens on the way home has graduated and he kills a dog. And it happens to be the dog. So, okay, obviously Lens is not a pleasant character. No. He's very farouche. And so he kills this dog and this dog belongs to these three burly Quebecois men who are living in Massachusetts. Yeah. <laughs> and they come out, basically they find where Lens lives and they're there to beat the shit out of him or kill him because he killed their dog. Meanwhile, there's like eight of the Ennett House <laughs> residents on the lawn because they had to move their cars because <laughs> that's a funny storyline. Because that's the thing they yeah. have to do, yeah. So they're all screaming. And so Dawn has to come out. And basically, he has to fight all three of these burly guys to save Lens. And he does like it's it's so good like it's such a fucking great scene <laughs> the the way it's described I I'm not gonna do it justice but basically he he ends up stopping them and between him and a couple of the other residents they end up killing one of them but he gets shot in the arm and he goes to the hospital and he's so committed to his addiction support that he doesn't take any painkillers yep. so he's just in pain so he starts hallucinating so much and he has like these visions and he he's like has conversations with James and Candenza yeah yeah <laughs> and his link to the rest of the book is that he is kind of friendly slash flirting with this Joelle Van Dyne who likes him because now she's in the Ennett house cuz she's an addict too so that's just like I don't know. What did you like? To me, that scene is one of the most memorable in the book yeah. of, of Don's fight scene at the end there. Don, yeah. I mean, so I don't it's... know what you thought about all of that part of, of his story and then his time in the hospital after as well. Because yeah. it's a huge, it's like a huge actual part of the narrative. It is. It <laughs> right? is. Yeah. I like, I, li- I agree uh, there. <laughs> the way he, uh, it's a great scene to the read. The way he describes, yeah, it's, 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 it'd be like, it's cinematic in novel form exactly right? it's yeah. like the, the uh, we've talked about this so many times but 
when when a when an art form does what it does better than any other art form, that's what this red imagined imagined fight is to your mind. Mm-hmm. It's like watching a beautifully orchestrated cinematic experience only on in the written word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. I don't know. Like I just I I found myself so drawn to the fact that he refused medication. Yeah. I think that that was so because what like everyone was telling him you're not cheating if you take no. it, right? Like the doctors were saying no. you're not cheating if you take it. His friends were saying you're not cheating if you take it. His sponsors were saying you're not cheating yeah. if you take it. But, but it was and you'll know you'll, I, I'm pretty sure this has happened in the book. It's a long time. <laughs> I read this book like four months ago like, yeah. for this podcast. <laughs> yeah. so. True, true. I'm pretty sure like his oldest AA friends were like, yeah, it's not cheating, but... But you'll know. But I believe in you to not yeah. do it. Yeah. <laughs> right? I guess what was so impactful to me and in, in him there was that he had no... He, he weirdly... It was like an inverse thing where it's like so many times the internal wants something bad, but we're so stopped because of the external displeasure that that will cause, yeah. right? And this is like the inverse of that, where the whole external would have been fine with it, but, but he, he would internally have been, he, he would have been, he yeah. would have been caving into his substance. So much about standing up to your own moral code, right? Yeah, and living according to that code. And in a scenario where he's in searing pain that it's causing him hallucinations, but he needs to still yeah, yeah. hold his code. Yeah. So I I found that, well, that's again why he's a hero. It's almost mm-hmm. like not not that it is better than life because like I know there are people that have done that, but that's. What what is David Foster Wallace doing? He's taking the ordinary and showing us how truly extraordinary it is. Mm-hmm. Like he's giving us ordinary moments, like mopping up shit or moving your car because there's some bureaucratic nightmare that is just taking this time out of your life now. Or <laughs> yeah, like basically the reason all these people have to move their cars is because at midnight the Boston metro parking group changes what side of street you're allowed to park on without getting ticketed yeah and the and the, and the ticket ticketeers are always there at like 1205 ready to just, <laughs> just waiting <get> <laughs> just, anyway yeah so but like that's a great point like he has to live through so much of this dumb bullshit but that we all do yeah that we and, all and do. it's described and yet then we see that there are these heroic moments in an quote-unquote on on an ordinary life Mm -hmm. these these remarkable moments in an ordinary life and he just owns it yep right and he owns it and he he doesn't own it when it's easy and he doesn't own it when it's hard he owns it when it's impossible yeah (laughs) right yeah when he's in the hospital potentially dying potentially dying potentially going to be on trial for murder because one of these guys died although he's got some Good witnesses. Unfortunately, they're all addicts. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, he's in searing pain because he got shot in the arm. But no, I'm not going to give in to my addiction. Yeah. And it's like, wow. <laughs> what, what an impressive so guy. I can't remember if there's anything important. Did we get anything important to the story in his conversations with his hallucination of James? Not that I remember. Okay. Well, it didn't strike us no. anyway. So, yeah, that's the kind of. And it house motif. Other than, I guess, did you have any real thoughts about Joel in the book? Well, is it, it is Joel when who talks about suicide a lot, right? I thought that was maybe that other girl, Kate. Oh, you're right. Sorry, it is Kate. Mm-hmm. 
I get yes. But but she also talks about it a little Joelle bit. Joel does talk about it, but you're right. The, the quote I'm thinking of is Kate. Well, this could be a good time to talk about it. If but you I, want. but I think well, it's just I guess that if, if that's the thing that struck me the most when I when I read this book the mm. first time. This is the thing that I think about the most mm. uh, because I think before I read this book, I saw suicide as a failure. Right. Like I saw it as someone giving up. Mm. It was actually really simple and and unnuanced. Fuck. I mean, sure. I guess I just hadn't really put a lot of thought into it because it's not something that's pleasant to think about. And well, and I think, which is understandable, like unless it's you yourself, every suicide in the world is somebody else. Yeah, which you are going to reflectively and and you might say in a in David Foster Wallace explained way, going to see through your own lens. Yeah, right. Like the world is around you. Everything is happening around you. <laughs> it's a screen, your screen. So yeah. if if someone else dies by a suicide, it's still in a weird way, if you're unreflected about it, happening to you. Right, right, <laughs> right? right. And so you are going to interpret it, even if it's passive, in what it does to you. Yeah, how it impacts which, you. Which in, in one way is going to be like, well, I'm not going to see that person again, and that sucks. Yeah, then right? you're upset or, with that person yeah, for ta- right. taking them out of your life. Exactly. Out of your life. But way, the way he describes it is like they're not any less afraid of death than the rest of us are. And they're not any more... I mean, he, though the specific kind of suicide he's talking about is like the person who's completely tormented mentally. Like to the point that the the way he describes it is like the the torment that they're experiencing is likened unto a person in a burning building mm-hmm. who decides to jump out the window. And he's like, make no mistake. Right. The person jumping out of the window is not more or less afraid of falling from a tent, from a hundred story building than you are, whatever story building they, the, that fear is equivalent. It's the fear and the pain of the fire that they're, that they're escaping, which is more than the fear of falling. Oh yeah. And it's, I think it's such a like, that that is art Mm -hmm. right because that's when you take an an allegory and you make it so vividly understandable to everyone to explain an internal psychological Mm -hmm. phenomenon and there's actually a really impactful scene in the end of the tour movie where he jason seagal's you know david foster wallace talks about that Yes. in the movie and yeah. it's really like it's it's very impacting yeah and i agree and it you know it's like it definitely gives me a lot of compassion for david foster wallace and yeah. the fact that he took his own life yeah because uh, you it, know well, it makes you understand at least it's almost like he, that was his suicide note he's like don't think that this is happening because i want to hurt every anyone or or any of these things mm-hmm. like it's because this pain is too much yeah yeah, it is. It's it's very impactful, and it's like, um, I mean, one of the main, a big, not a huge part of this book, but present that we haven't talked about yet is depression. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely some characters suffering with depression. I think Joelle is too, yes. actually. Like yes. weirdly, she's depressed that she's too beautiful, so she can't actually have a real interaction or relationship with <laughs> which any I person. mean, yeah, which that's is a legitimate for concern. sure. Like, could you ever know? if someone actually cared about you, if you were like so beautiful that you made people want to watch a videotape of you until you died. (laughs) (laughs) Until they died. And you had to wear a veil. Oh man. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like this whole kind of COVID lockdown, I've had a like a very visceral reaction to at this stage where I've even had some physiological 
feelings around what I think are mental health stuff that are just like, oh my gosh, I definitely don't feel depressed. But if this is like the creeping beginnings of what it might feel like for someone, this is not pleasant sometimes, you know, like headaches or just no energy, fatigue, not being able to engage in the creativity that you normally can or as quickly. Like it's very disheartening sometimes. And this book, see, this is what I love about this book is that it's so funny and yet it is so sad. Like there well, are so, but like, and, and that, so many sad parts in this. That's book. why it's it's almost like I I can't even describe how and dark. Like not afraid to go to some of the darkest parts of the human soul. Yeah, this book makes me feel empty. Like it makes me be like, how how could someone create like mm. when I when, even when I just think about the title and I'm like, he literally calls it that, and then every single thing he does for a thousand and one hundred pages is a is an echo of that title right right yeah like you just said like what is infinite jest it's like what what is that from that's the shakespearean kind of like what is life it's a sound of (laughs) theory signifying nothing it's from that isn't that a it's the hamlet line like it's from that hamlet monologue Mm -hmm. basically saying life is infinite jest Mm -hmm. and like his entire book is this Ah, I don't know, magnum opus, this symphony to the absurdity of existence. And hopefully to find some earnestness. And and his answer to the absurdity of existence is is the humble overcoming of self. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and one one day at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Well, those are the three main themes of the book that we've, I think, done – an exhaustive job on although probably not complete i guess that's the same thing we've done a good job on if not exhaustive yeah Yeah. uh there are a couple other parts of the book i want to talk about because they're just great um you referenced it earlier but the eric clipperton story yes so uh, there's um this character that used so he used to go to uh this enfield tennis academy his name was eric clipperton and he had this (laughs) quirk i guess you could say of always having a loaded gun on the court held to his head. And he told his, like everyone, if I ever lose, I'll kill myself. I'll kill myself. I'll blow my brains out. And so every opponent just didn't play against him. So he won every match. So he became like the highest ranked player yeah. in the country, <laughs> which then made him commit suicide. Cause, Cause no one wanted to beat. Well, I think he committed suicide cause someone beat him. No, who didn't know. No. Didn't he play a player that, that, oh, right, that beat right. him yes, and that yes, didn't yes, know yeah, that that's, that's right. what he would do? And he lost it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he so like it's it's a again told through David Foster Wallace's way. It's so long winded and just absurd. It's so fucking absurd. But I did think it highlight a very good example of um, a category error. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because tennis is a social construction, and Clipperton is living like. The incentive has changed Mm -hmm. now for him and for his opponent. And I just, I thought it was a a very visceral and silly example of a real thing. It's like, I, it's important to be staying flush with what the category of what you're doing is. Yeah. Right. And, and talking about a, a, like a suicide or killing yourself if you lose a sport is, is a perfect way of conceptualizing when you're out of sync 
proportionally with what's going on in your life. Well, what's interesting is there's a lot more depth to that than just that, which mm. is that that category error goes all the way down. Mm-hmm. Right? There are so many things that we think are like, it's like, oh, if my, let's take a really extreme example. Uh, if my child died, I don't think I could go on living. Right. Well, that's, that's horrific. And like, we wish that on no one. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's a category error to think that something that happens to someone else should determine whether you continue on or not. Yeah, yeah, sure. Right? Or on a lesser note, if my career doesn't keep progressing, I'm a failure. Mm, yeah. Well, are you? Yeah. Or but like, or does that matter? <laughs> uh, if I don't get the promotion, then I'm going to take it out on my kids Yeah. at home. Right. See, these are like, various levels yeah. of the same yeah. conceptual problem, mm-hmm. which is you're putting too much stock in a declining asset. I guess why I feel like a sport like tennis and death are a perfect example of this is because they make the point so starkly. That's what I'm saying. Right? It's like a it's, stark contrast. It's so, it's so obvious. You yes. don't need to waste any time explaining to people why this is ridiculous. It's like <laughs> the burning building and jumping out. He makes yeah. such a stark, yeah. visceral example of it and then you can use that particular example as a kind of guiding light for other less clear examples but are similar right yes which which would be like career and health and your feelings and like how if one thing affects you in one category of your life like the proper like there's a reason why in tennis the way to prevent an opponent from beating you isn't to threaten shooting yourself in the head. It's just to play better than that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like right, you're yeah. in the confines of the agreed upon social construction when you are trying to beat them through tennis, as opposed to threatening them by killing yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> That's exactly. like you're, you're outside of the system of the agreed upon thing that you're doing. And if you have a bad day at work and you take it on your ki- out on your kids, you're outside of the system of the g- agreed upon thing, yeah, right? Yeah. Now, that's not to say it's easy. It's obviously hard when it's real life stuff. But it's like you said, it's a, it's a, I love that, a signpost where mm-hmm. it's basically like, hey, yeah. pay attention to this. Check out this, this, this category error. This is important. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It can be something as simple as a disproportionate emotional response. Yeah. <laughs> right? right. That's like boiling it, could, it down to like the nitty could, gritty of human life. Even road rage. Yeah. I've thought about this a lot and it, and it happens to me like on occasion because I, I'll get upset, but it's like, what does my getting upset? Mm-hmm. How does that impact? I'm inside my car. They can't hear me. It might make, make me drive more radically. Right. But, but even worse, so put myself in more danger. But also that emotion that I'm feeling has no impact on the person that I'm having the negative emotion towards. Zero. Mm-hmm. It's only negative to me. I'm glad you bring up Road Rage because he actually talks about that in his yes. This Is Water yes. speech yes. is um, maybe that person who cut you off is on the way to the hospital for their you don't know. child, yeah. right? You don't know. And and the fact that it's not impossible makes it something we're thinking about. And I think he he's so good at this these tiny little embodied thought experiments for us. To chew on. And that right? and really, that's what infinite jest is, is a collection of those body experiments. Like, if, if you break it down, mm. it's almost as if... I like that body experiment. Yeah. Embodied thought experiment. Oh, sorry, embodied. Well, you but know. I like body experiments <laughs> better. I'm tired. <laughs> I've experimented... Trust me, David, I've experimented with my body tons. <laughs> I'm sure you have, Luke. I'm sure you have. No, But yeah, that, you're right. It embodies... That's what the book is, right? It's, 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 if you boil it down, it's a, a bunch of little proverbs and and parables 
about life that are meant to teach you a lesson of how to live a little bit better. But see, this is what I find so special about this book and David Foster Wallace together is that the way he writes this story is like he talks about how he lived his life, which is embedded. He is a part of what he's talking about. And in fact, the only reason he has any kind of license to us is because he's gone through what he's talking about. And he he just shows these webs of connections between things that he's not outside of. He can he considers himself to be a part of the story he's talking about. Yeah. Which makes him more like a real person, which is hilarious because his brain works so abnormally <laughs> to almost anyone I've ever read. Yeah. That I think it was uh, the joke is I made about him is that he had the talent to know when to throw in a good lowbrow joke. Right. 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 He, th- there's so like <laughs> the way you experience this is book, he will throw in likes and ums into the prose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, and not as something a character is saying, <laughs> but like as a narrative feature of what yeah. someone might be thinking yeah. in a situation. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, he's dumbed it down because he knows not, not that it's dumb, but it's actually how someone might say it or think in it. In their head, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that was um, something I appreciated. Okay, we're almost done. I, I love how he writes in so many different speaking styles of America. Yeah. Like, the, like he'll he write the in an Irish accent. Yeah, he, knows, yeah. he knows the dialect. Oh, it's, so, it's very Mark Twain. Well, the very beginning, which is something we haven't really talked about and we don't need to get, dwell on, but the first hundred pages of this book are in the mind of an addict. Yeah. As they're trying to get score. Yeah. So, and that's the whole first hundred pages. So good. So good. <laughs> the This is Water is a joke told in this book. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's yeah. so good. Because it's like, again, all so much of David Foster's, David Foster Wallace's work is like reference to him or himself <laughs> or, or his other book or like yeah. different things he does. Yeah. So I, I just, I didn't remember that that joke was in this book. Near the end of the book, he had he talked about that one video that James Incandenza made called Blood Sister, which was about a nun who was like trained by another nun, but then found out that the the top nun was the betrayer. But it was like they were fighting, right? Yeah, and uh, honestly, it reminded me of Return of the Jedi <laughs> because it's, <laughs> right, like it's like the, the two top nuns are fighting the youngest nun, but then the middle nun saves the youngest nun because she was actually her protege. Yeah, the top one. So I was like the whole Vader, Luke, <laughs> Emperor trio, but like as like nuns. Nun- ninja nuns. <laughs> it was so good. And then um, last thing before wrap up is that you know how sometimes I've talked about how. I don't think someone's wrong, but I think that they could be more right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like fleshing out more what you're saying. You know how I say like, where's David? Oh, he's in Canada. Right. Right? Like that's true and <laughs> pretty much useless to anyone asking yeah. a real question. Right? True, like, true. A, a better answer is he's in Alberta. Right. A better answer is he's in Calgary. A better answer, he's at blah, blah, blah. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right? Like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So it's like you don't say that the person who says, where's David? Oh, he's in Canada. That person isn't wrong, but that doesn't mean it's useful. So I've tried to like figure out how to articulate this idea of getting closer to the best answer as opposed to one that we can simply say is true, even if it's not that useful. Yeah. And then get away with, well, it's true. 
And I, I just feel like the way this book is, is that he doesn't give himself any wiggle room to get out of because of the level of detail he gets into, right? Right. It's almost like he couldn't be more true. Because he's so, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the level of depth like and detail and intricacy that he gets and in factual. this book and factual knowledge and and like we 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 referenced it a bit in the middle section but like experiential there, he's describing experiences there is so much information about technology and drugs yes. in this book like t- like technical information like license numbers the scientific names of drugs ad nauseum it's to the point where like how the fuck am i supposed to read this yeah i'm just gonna yeah. glaze over it so that level of depth, given the example I just gave, he his answer to where is David would be like he could give you the coordinates, the in GPS coordinates in the yeah. space time continuum, <laughs> and in t- like where you'll be now in ten minutes, in fifty, like yeah, like just that level of detail, right? And like now, obviously, <laughs> it's hard to aspire to that degree <laughs> yes. in in anything, let yeah. alone our creative endeavors, but. It's a good North Star of what I'm trying to talk about of like, I can't imagine this book being more thorough than it is. No. Right? Well, like and, and he actually said in an interview that I watched, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, he actually said, there's not a single line in that book that I'm not proud of. Mm-hmm. And you think about it, there's a lot of lines. <laughs> yeah. He well, said, but they did line editing, yeah. which is like literally going line by line and saying, is this exactly what you want to say here? Mm-hmm. Well, no wonder it took so long. Yeah, three years. So... Yeah, I don't even exactly have a point here other than to say, maybe so that you can remind me of it later, like this is an example in culture of a entity that I don't think could be more correct yes. or more true in what it's trying to say. Yeah. Do, like there's, we've done some great books and movies where I'm like, eh, maybe I would have changed that or right. this could have been a little bit more but that's, forthcoming. Yeah, but this right? is an example of that not being the case. Yeah, like uh, no stone is unturned <laughs> yeah. in, in this story you're right right you're right now that might not literally be true in in the sense like he probably could have gone into even more detail about <laughs> well, something that's but infinite yes detail like you know that i often get a, not angry but i get a little bit i'm not even annoyed i don't even know the right word. I, I i get sad saddened when a answer that is technically correct but not thorough enough is accepted as a like oh well it's at least it's right. <laughs> you know, yeah, at least yeah. David is in Canada, so someone didn't lie. <laughs> yeah, and I just like no if Specif- you want, specificity if you is want important. Better, you need to do better. I like that, right? And he did better. He did. He did the best. And so that was kind of my last. And and I have to. This is a more fun thing, but um, there's a scene in in the end of the tour movie, which which uh, so Jesse Eisenberg plays. Dave Lipsky, who is the journalist. Guy, the journalist from Rolling Stone, who's interviewing David Foster Wallace, and uh, in his house, David Foster Wallace has a poster of Alanis Morissette. Dave Lipsky asks David Foster Wallace why, and David Foster Wallace is like, "Well, she just seems so real to me. Like, you know, sometimes there's just some girls you can't imagine eating a bologna sandwich." <laughs> But I can imagine Alanis Morissette <laughs> eating a bologna sandwich. And I guess I kind of like that. I was like, well, that's why I like Alanis Morissette, too. <laughs> I, I'm a big Alanis Morissette fan. There so you go. There you go. I, I agree with that. Uh, 
analysis. Yeah, so Jason analysis. Seagal as David Foster Wallace. <laughs> Which I think he does mention in the Rolling Stones yeah. interview. And I mean, maybe, is there any thing from that movie that stuck with you like there was just some i didn't rewatch it before right this, right so i don't have enough memories of it but mm. i do remember I, it's the very... tension between the two uh, of them the two of them yeah. and then their little explosion that happens and just thinking that that kind of tension happens in a highly charged environment where pe- two people care a lot about what's mm-hmm. happening I think it actually has to do with him sleeping or like well, with a David girl. Lipsky flirting with one of his old friends, which Who is, he kind of wanted to sleep with. Well, but. I don't know if they wanted to, but he just felt like it was an abuse of yeah. privilege, yeah, yeah, <laughs> kind yeah, of thing. Exactly. It's a great movie. It's it's understated. Yes, which is nice. Like it's a it's a low key. Kind of the opposite of the Social Network in terms of yeah. like the Social Network mm-hmm. is massively overstated. I yeah. feel and yeah. like dramatized, whereas. At the end, the end of a tour, I would say is is very um, its colors are mm-hmm. are more muted. Yeah, but perhaps its message is more profound. And it's all just the feeling of talking to a someone portraying David Foster Wallace, right? So, plus it's you know because of when it is, it's set in the '90s, which again is my favorite decade. <laughs> there <so>. we go. <laughs> well, we could like the thing is, you could go like we could have a. We could a have series. A, we could have an episode. We could yeah, we could do a hundred pages of every hundred pages of Infinite Jest could have its own really true fiction episode. Maybe we'll do that one. We day. could just take <laughs> maybe we'll become like a God so the dirty, David like Foster Wallace fan club. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just happy that we've talked about him so much now that we've finally we've yeah. done the novel <laughs> that he did and and That's we true. and we even d- we didn't talk too much about conscious and unconscious, which is like the thesis of his. This is water speech. That's which true. I wonder. I'll, maybe I'll. Yeah, I'll um, I'll attach the link to that speech in, yes. the, in the show notes yeah. for this episode. So look for that because I listen to it. You know, every couple months. Yeah, me I, too. Or, and I, I and I show it to it people whenever yeah. I can. <laughs> it's almost like I'm spreading the good news mm-hmm. with that thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, I don't think our thoughts are hidden on this book. We both love it very much, and it's very dear to us. And I, I will probably read it one or two more times in my life. Yeah, but probably not soon. <laughs> <laughs> However, you don't have to read Infinite Jest to get its good ideas. But I think I still, it's a book you got to read once in your life, at least once. And I'll tell you this: even uh, and t- and don't give up on it. No. I took me. You're gonna want. It to. took me about seven or eight times. I picked it up. I started reading. I get 52 pages pages in. And I couldn't keep going. Mm. I did that so many times. I did that. I think seven times. And the eighth time, I finally got. I broke through. Right. Because you have to. You have to understand what he's doing. Like you could read that Eschaton game and not understand what's going on. If you're not, you have to be very present and paying attention to mm-hmm. his writing to get the genius of what he's doing. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, be present, be patient with it, but it will like a hundredfold reward you because it is so you could you could still experience everything we've talked about in this episode and feel it afresh and anew when it's yeah, coming when through it, yeah. the pages. So I was just gonna read a little section yeah, of the yeah, book. Go for it. This isn't any profound like we spent so much time talking about all the important parts. This is not a profound or deep section of the book. But it really portrays his sense of humor, and I think it's perfect. So it's a story about, I guess it's like a, a someone writing in about a, a, a WCB complaint, like being injured at work, <laughs> yeah. and it was um, like crushed by a barrel. 
so I just have to read it because and, and apologies if I'm laughing while I'm reading it because it's really <laughs> fucking funny. I ha- I'm going to read the whole thing because uh, everything I'm reading to you here is in the prose of the book. So this is the chapter title. From internal interlay system email memo CAH-NNE2 2-357-5634-22 Claims Adjustment Headquarters State Farm Insurance Companies Incorporated Bloomington, Illinois, 26 June Year of Dairy Products from American Heartland That is the chapter title <laughs> Now in 90's uh, MS-DOS font From Murray F. at Klizquim22.626 intcom to Paulag Sanchez Pariak at clickkim 62 intcom Message, guys, get a load. My death of a bad day. Metro Boston Region 22 this spring. Comp claim. Witnesses deposed by botanist workman's comp. Established claimant impaired in emergency room recipients. List of blood alcohol of 0.3 plus. So be pleased to know we're clear of the 357-5 liability end. But basic facts below confirmed by witnesses and CYD accident report. Here's just the first page. Get a load. Like, this is, okay, I know that that's boring and stupid. That's in the book so yeah. much. As a joke. So here it is. This is from Dwayne R. Glenn to Workman's Accident Claims Office in Normal, Illinois. Dear Sir, I'm writing in response to your request for additional information. In block number three of the accident reporting form, I put trying to do the job alone as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain more fully, and I trust that the following details will be sufficient. I am a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, March 27th, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had about 900 kilograms of brick left over. Rather than laboriously carrying the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley, which fortunately was attached to the side of the building at the sixth floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the brick into it. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 900 kilograms of bricks. You will note in block number 11 of the accident reporting that I weigh 75 kilograms. Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. (laughs) Needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the fractured skull and broken collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulleys. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of considerable pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel from the force of hitting the ground. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 30 kilograms. I refer you again to my weight of 75 kilograms in block number 11. As you could imagine, still holding the rope, I began a rather rapid descent from the pulley down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured ankles and the laceration of my legs and lower body. The encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my impact with the brick-strewn ground below. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks in considerable pain, unable to stand or move and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind and unfortunately let go of the rope, causing the barrel to begin, uh, and then it cuts off. So that's like what you're in for, yeah, everybody, if you listen. Infinite jest, guys. Infinite jest. Oh, I am... I am... You know, after you've eaten 
a really good meal. a really good meal or you've just you've had a really good sleep i'm exhausted from this episode but in such a fulfilling way yeah again please read this book and just ingest it yeah <laughs> infinitely ingest infinitely it. ingest it <laughs> yeah uh. i don't know thank you so much for listening everybody um if you like this podcast please tell your friends about it because we are really hoping to grow and if you would like to be a guest on the podcast let us know really true fiction at gmail.com or you just have a comment anything at all really or a suggestion let us know so anyway thanks for listening it's been another episode of really true fiction my name is luke mason and my name is david parker may the force be with you <laughs> may the force be with you